Hi, this is June Hyatt Bretone, former vocalist with the Vaughn Monroe Orchestra, and I'd like to say hi to my friend Dwayne Kilstrup. Yesterday, USA. From deep in the heart of Texas, welcome to a Classics and Curios Showcase Special, featuring perhaps the best of the singing band leaders, Vaughn Monroe. What a joy to hear that theme again. Well, on this multi-part Classics and Curios Showcase program, we'll feature Vaughn, several of his hit recordings, musical moments from Vaughn's radio shows, and Vaughn Monroe's Moon Maids, including perhaps some rare collector performances. I grew up listening to the big bands on radio and at stage shows at the Orpheum Theater in Omaha, Nebraska. I went on to a 37-year career as a foreign language professor, and after I retired some nine years ago, I began living a fantasy by playing big band recordings on my own radio show, 
And I started as Eddie Hubbard's DJ of the day on ABC Radio and then with my own show on this great station, Yesterday USA. All in all, I've enjoyed Vaughn Monroe and the Moon Maids on records for some 50 years. So imagine my excitement when I discovered that one of the Vaughn Monroe Moon Maids was actually living in my neighborhood in Arlington, Texas in this year of 2006. Her name is June Hyatt Breton, and she'll be joining us in some interview segments in a few minutes on part one of this Classics and Curios multi-part showcase special. First, let's turn the spotlight on Classics and Curios version of the big band make-believe ballroom for Vaughn Monroe and his orchestra. Vaughn and the band performed their first big hit, There I Go, from 1940-41, a hit parade recording for 19 weeks, four at number one.
Brown's voice was uh, so imposing that it usually was more popular than his orchestra. So record companies and producers tended to limit the musical range of his band. Well, the uh, audiences didn't seem to mind. But Vaughn felt frustrated at times, which uh, his audience never noticed, because Vaughn was truly a class act and always did his best to please his fans. A performer who can testify to Vaughn Monroe's classy character is June Hyatt Breton, one of his moon maids, and my newfound friend and neighbor here in Texas. June talked about Vaughn and the moon maids in an interview in the spring of 2006 with me and yesterday USA executive producer Walden Hughes. So sit back and enjoy a visit with moon maid June Hyatt Breton. And Walden gets us underway. I have my good friend, Dwayne Kilkip, with me. Hi, Dwayne. Hi, Walden. We have a special guest today that I would like you to do the honors. Well, I'd be glad to. Uh, and she is really a special guest today, a special lady uh, who performed for many years with the uh, Vaughn Monroe Orchestra as one of the uh, wonderful moon maids, June Bretone. Yes, and I'm here, Dwayne. Welcome to Yesterday USA. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. June, uh, tell us about your early career. Well, I really had no career other than schooling. And uh, I went to a two-year college here in Arlington, Texas, and sang, I, we had a little trio and a quartet, and then I had planned to go to the University of Texas in Austin, and then one Sunday afternoon I had the radio turned on and heard this group of girls singing from Dallas. They had, were appearing in a theater there, and they were from North Texas uh, College in Denton. And I went in and told my mother, I'm not going to Austin to school. I'm going up to Denton and sing with those girls. <laughs> Talk about optimism. But anyway, I changed my uh, uh, mind about where I was going to college and went to North Texas. And they were, of course, such a tied-up group that uh, they didn't have room for me. So I started my own group. And we sang with Sonny Dunham's orchestra for quite a while. And then uh, that band uh, broke up, and I came back home, and I was kind of broken up myself after having had just a little taste of the big time. And then to come home, and I was a secretary for an oil company in Fort Worth. I had been smart enough to... Um, take business administration instead of music because I never dreamed I could make any money in music and I was just so unhappy after having had just a taste of it and then one night I received a phone call from New York and it was the Moon Maids and they said one of the girls was ill and they were wondering if I could come up and replace her temporarily and I said, oh, I would love it. Well, one catch, they hadn't asked Vaughn yet. Just a minor problem. <laughs> so I went to work the next day and spent most of the day cleaning out my desk and typing Vaughn Monroe and the Moon Maids all day long. I was just so optimistic that uh, 
the next evening they called and said he was willing to take a chance on me. So I didn't tell anybody in Arlington that this was to be a temporary thing. I just let them think that I was going away to sing with them for a long period of time. And there was a big send-off, a big article in the paper, and all of my friends and family were at this uh, uh, plane to see me off. And I went to New York, and uh, they we rehearsed mo mostly the first week. And I kind of dreaded the time that the ill moon maid would return. But by the time she was ready to come back, Vaughn wanted me to stay. So I was just thrilled to death. That was in the fall of 1947. Oh. And uh, then later I was fortunate enough to be able to sing solos with his band. You uh, traveled a lot with the band. Can you uh, give us an idea of a typical day? We usually, now the first thing that comes to mind is having bacon and eggs about 3 o'clock in the morning. We would get on the band bus after a performance and drive to the next city. And then we would have, I guess, what we called breakfast about 3 o'clock in the morning. And then we'd sleep till about noon. And then um, in the evening, do our performance and get on the band bus again and take off. So there was really no structure to it. What were some of the most requested songs that the audience would request when you guys were singing together? Mm, there, I've said it again was yeah. one. And uh, then, of course, uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky, Ballerina. We did one show at the Strand where there was a, a ballerina dancing on this uh, baby grand piano. That was Those shows were really just something so special in New York. Uh, there, you, were, you were able to see a stage show and a movie, and I don't remember what the admission was then, but it wasn't very much. But Ballerina was one of the most requested, and Red Roses for a Blue Lady, and uh, oh gosh, so many. He really had a lot of uh, really uh, wonderful recordings that people would request everywhere we went. Mm -hmm. But one of the songs that uh, people seem to enjoy a lot now uh, is Dream. You know, the old, do, do you remember that one? Yeah, Dream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was a big, big hit. And the I'll Never Smile Again, the right. Pied Pipers, and we we did that a lot. The old standards, you know, Stardust and things like that, people really, really do enjoy. When and you... we, we, ha we made a CD about, oh gosh, uh, has it been 15 years ago now, and uh, the songs that people liked the most were the simplest uh, arrangements and you know, things like Stardust sure. and the, the ones that are the most familiar to them. Seems like old times and things like that. When you have a guest star on the Saturday night show like Jimmy Durante or uh -huh. somebody like that, and they want to do a music routine, 
would you guys rehearse with them a couple of times? You remember what was sort of the practice when they would get up and do their specialty numbers? I don't think that we joined in that much. Mm -hmm. It seems like they were just maybe a separate entity on the show. I don't remember. Oh, gosh. Well, maybe some of the other girls would remember sure. uh, I more than I do. But I, I don't remember ever joining in with them. Right. I, ju I think they just did their did their own little part, and we did ours. What I have, for example, is that you guys would do a little jingle intro. Like, yes. Like, uh, here's Kitty Cowan, and then yes. they would go into Kitty Cowan and sing her song. You yes. guys would do, I guess, like a little specialty jingle. Yes, it was the, it's the same melody that we did and uh, did every week for the Camel Caravan, and it was, of course, adjusted to whoever would be uh, the guest star that week. Um, I'm trying to remember. It, it, I remember the way it ended, uh, and we'd say, and here's Kitty Callan, da, 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 as the caravan rolls along, something like that. Yep, that's just, what I have, yep, yep. Simple little ditty yeah. that we would sing and put the person's name in. And I remember what a thrill it was to hear my name there. <laughs> when I did the Saturday night show, oh. and uh, Vaughn, uh, I would never have asked to sing solos, but he did one song that was in my key that I could have sung. And one night, I think we were at the Statler Hotel or the Pennsylvania in New York, and he called up that number, and I closed my eyes, and I thought, let me sing this song, let me sing. And he stopped almost like he received my mental telepathy and turned around and said, do you want to sing this? And I nodded yes. And I got up and sang, and it was someone to watch over me. Aww. And that was the first time I had ever sung a solo with the band. And then that's when he offered me the job as the featured soloist. Hmm. So that's kind of my song now. <laughs> and then let me ask you a personal question. I'm really close friend with Burl Davis. Uh -huh. And Burl, uh, I know, sang with, sort of the, uh, on the radio show on Saturday night with Vi Monroe, which sort of the girl singer, yes. before she went to your, on your hip parade of Frank Sinatra. I remember her yeah. so well. Do you still talk to I her? I talk to her a lot. She lives out here in California. Really? Yes. Uh, she still sings. Uh, she's in heavy demand because she was Glenn Miller's last singer before uh, Glenn disappeared. And oh. so she goes to England once a year to perform once a year for a whole month in England. Oh, I remember her so well. Yes. Such a beautiful lady yeah. and so sweet. I, we ha we were so lucky to have so many wonderful guest artists on our Saturday Night Camel Caravan radio show, and she was one of my favorites. Do you remember how that show was done? Was it just one live broadcast? Did you have an East Coast, West Coast broadcast? How was that radio show done? Well, we did... Uh, uh, from, from wherever we happened to be is where the broadcast originated. Uh, mostly, as if my memory is correct, from universities across the country. And it was a coast-to-coast -coast, uh, bro uh, broadcast for the Camel uh, Cigarettes, Camel Caravan. 
and we had so many wonderful uh, guests, Jimmy Durante and uh, Rosemary Clooney and, oh, just so many people we were able to meet. We, we were able to meet Perry Como, and not that he was on our show, because Vaughn, of course, did not have any male competition um, as a guest uh, appearance. But uh, we were just so fortunate and young and never worried about anything at all, just enjoyed life. I, I'm sure we couldn't do that now, because just the 11 days that we spent in Palm Beach... I think we were all pretty ready to come home. And we we weren't on one-nighters even. We were in one hotel. So uh, we, when you're young, you can take a lot of things that you can't take when you're older. How many roommates were there when you joined in 1947? Four. Mm. And uh, Mary Jo Thomas Grogan was from Dallas, is from Dallas or was from Denton and lives in Dallas now. She was our lead singer. And then, um, oh gosh, uh, Tinker Rautenberg, who now lives in North Carolina, uh, was one of the group. And Mary Lee, who lives in Arizona now. We were the four who were with Vaughn the longest. And then about, oh gosh, it's hard to remember how many years ago, we reformed uh, a singing group, and we called ourselves the Moon Mage Plus One. And Mary Jo's husband, Harold Grogan, sang Vaughn's part. And we had so many invitations to sing and so many jobs to do around here that we just couldn't handle them all. People really liked that. And Harold, by the way, was in the group that I sang with with Sonny Dunham. So. We're all kind of, our, our lives have been intertwined. But with two women now living in North Carolina, and Mary Jo in Dallas, and I'm here in Arlington, it's not really easy to uh, get together and practice and keep, keep that blend. So the two, day, two days that we had before our appearance in Florida, we really worked very, very hard to get our blend back. Let me turn it back over to Dwayne. Okay. Dwayne? Uh, though you mentioned the one-nighters, uh, that must have been a pretty grueling uh, experience. It was. In fact, so many times we didn't even know what city we were in. I remember one time walking down a street in, uh, in a city and asking someone, what city is this? They must have thought I was crazy. But we we were just, there were so many one-nighters. I have, or Tinker had, all of the itinerary printed up, and I have a copy of it, and I can't even believe it. We did our laundry in the bathtub sometimes with our formal dresses. We would starch them. We were on the Ed Sullivan show one time, and our dresses, of course, were really grubby after being on one-nighters for so long. And we didn't have time to get them clean, so we washed those voluminous skirts in the bathtub and starched them and ironed them, and they looked absolutely beautiful. And we sewed, uh, we took our own sewing machine on the road, and we made a couple of the dresses that we wore. We were, we were really uh, 
And Vaughn was such a wonderful boss. Uh, he was kind of a father image to us, even though he wasn't that much older, maybe 15 years. But uh, he and his wife would come uh, when we would be uh, in one place for a long time, like the Strand Theater in New York. We'd sometimes be there for two weeks. And she would come and his two little girls. So it was he was really a family man and a wonderful person, a great boss. So nothing but just beautiful memories. Do you remember doing uh, one night or oh, band remote during the week, or would the only radio show you guys would do be on Saturday night? No, no, we did others. I remember. That I, in fact, I have had some old um, records of transcripts. They were called, of course, and. I sent them to a friend in California whose name is Stephen Fratelloni. He uh, is with the Jazz Connection magazine. He has uh, an email address. I'm not sure what it is now. Jazz Connection, I think it is, Steve Fratelloni. Anyway, I sent a ton of records out there to him. I didn't even know what I had. And he was so kind to put all of that old music onto CDs for me and to send back. And I've just enjoyed playing them in my car. And so many of them were not uh, a Camel Caravan Saturday night show. So many of them were, uh, say, from Philadelphia at the Click Club. One, one night we'd have a 30-minute uh, broadcast. So we had a lot of exposure. <laughs> One of the ones I'm going to play for the audience in a little while is uh, my good friend Kitty Coward was a oh, guest yes. was a guest on your show in uh, yes. November 5th, 1950. Oh and, my! And so we're going to play that for the audience here in a little while. But uh, Wonderful. It, it's also fun to listen to your harmony. Did you girls ever listen to other groups? I'm thinking like the Pied Pipers or some of the other groups that were going really strong Did in the 40s. Did we ever sing with them? Is no, listen, listen to them. Listen to oh, the records. Or yes, absolutely. I remember the first time that, that I heard um, Mel Torme and the Meltones do What Is This Thing Called Love? Yes. I thought, oh, that's the most fantastic thing. No, we, we of course, patterned ourselves, I think, a lot after so many of the uh, of the groups in those days when we were playing at the strand we did five shows a day and at the end of that day i one day i was so exhausted i told the girls i'm going back to the apartment and crash i can't take another minute of this and they said well stan kenton's singing group is coming over I'm, i've forgotten what they were called now um Anyway, they're, they're coming over uh, after the last show, and they're going to sing, or we're, we'll sing with them. I said, okay, I'll stay for a few minutes. The next thing I knew, I looked out. We were at, still at the theater, the Strand, in one of the rehearsal rooms, and I looked out, and I saw daylight, and I thought, what in the world? I had... I was so engrossed in listening to them sing and singing with them. Oh, and the high lows. When I, when I lived up in New Jersey, 
they would come to a place called Bruno's. Jerry Bruno was a wonderful bass player with our band. He's still active, as is Bucky Pizzarelli, the guitarist. And he owned a little restaurant uh, very near us, near the New York State border in New Jersey. And so many of the musicians would come there after work uh, when they would be playing what they called the businessman's bounce, and then they could come to Bruno's and play whatever they wanted. And Steve and Edie were there one night, and Dick Hyman, and yeah. oh, Don Costa did so many of our arrangements. He was there, and of course, Bucky Pizzarelli and his wife Ruth were there a lot. And uh, one evening, the Hilos were there, and we got to, Tinker was with me, and we got to kind of fill in and sing along with them. and. That was really a thrill. I know. Um, let's talk about a record date. Um, back in those days, you probably what, did four sides in three hours, I imagine. Was that the typical, when you were recording a 78 record, was that generally the routine that um, you guys would go in and uh, get in there and do your uh, four songs and then uh, leave for the day? Yeah, that was usually the way that it happened, if, if I remember it correctly. That, that, we're going back a long time mm -hmm. now. <laughs> That's been, what, 60 years ago. Do you remember anything about Ghost Riders? Was that a one take? Do you remember anything about Ballerina when you guys went in and recorded those songs? Oh, gosh, no, because... Uh, as is the case with so many people I've read stories about, they say when they recorded that song, they didn't have any idea that it was going to be as popular as it was. Mm -hmm. Remember Rosemary Clooney didn't want to do Come On To My House? Yes. And so when, when Vaughn did Ballerina, we thought, well, it's just another, maybe a B-side, you know, mm -hmm. never dreaming that it would... Uh, be as popular as it was, it was it was kind of hard to predict. Anything go wrong during the uh, shows? Well, <laughs> we had a running uh, game, a, a rummy game, that we played backstage, and we missed a cue one time when Vaughn was singing, and we were supposed to come out on the stage. And he wasn't too happy about that, but he was always very, very understanding. And one time, Mary Jo's slip fell down around her ankles, and she stepped out of it and threw it over her shoulder, and it landed on Bucky's guitar stand. <laughs> and everybody got a big kick out of that. And, uh, oh, there were always, we had... Do you happen to remember Frank Fontaine? I sure do. Oh, yes. yes. He traveled with us. And you talk about laughing. Uh, he just kept, you know, you'd think when you hear his routine once that the next time it wouldn't be very funny. But every time he did his routine, we'd laugh. And uh, where was I going with this? I, well, we could um, talk about you breaking up. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. He, he used to play so many tricks on people. Uh, there was one time, I think, he was hanging out the a hotel window, and all they could see was his fingers hanging onto the window. Scared them half to death. <laughs> but we did. We had so many, uh, so many laughs, and, and 
Well, I just can't tell you how blessed I feel. And we had a our band bus uh, caught fire mm. in Morgantown, West Virginia. Uh, I remember the guys had a poker game going. There, it was always a poker game. I had my crossword puzzle, and everybody was doing their own thing. And the bus driver said that the brake linings were something was wrong. I don't remember how he worded, but he just asked everybody to get off the bus, which we did. But we didn't take anything with us. I didn't take my purse or, you know, we just got off. And we were standing outside the bus, and the, the driver said, I think you'd better run as fast as you can or get away from here. And so we ran, all of us ran through the, I remember, mountains, mountainous territory. And as we went around the curve running, we heard this explosion. And the band bus just blew up. And you talk about a bedraggled bunch coming into the theater that night. Wow. We, uh, fortunately, our gowns were on a separate truck. So we were able to wear our pretty dresses that evening. But what an awful feeling to walk into the hotel and check in with nothing. We went to a drugstore, and I remember I bought a toothbrush. I think that was the first thing. <laughs> but it was it was really a traumatic thing. And the most valuable thing that I lost cost 35 cents. It was a diary uh, that I had written in faithfully every night. And, of course, that's all it was worth for the insurance purposes. So, But we've had, we had so many wonderful experiences, mm. even that. Looking back on that, it wasn't that bad. Well, did you notice a change in the business? In other words, in the 40s, I imagine you worked a lot more than you did, let's say, by the late 50s. The, the, in other words, the one-night stands would not have been as often. Well, I think that we quit the band while it was still at its peak, which was in 1950. We were still going strong, as many one-nighters as ever. And I think it began to uh, wane after that. Uh, Vaughn did get a, a television show right after we left. But then the uh, dates became more sporadic. They, they were not, uh, well, you know, once the music changed, uh, everything changed. And it was just a gradual uh, downhill from then on for our, our kind of music. It seems to be enjoying a little bit of a resurgence now, I think. I hope. June, is you mentioned that you made a CD, I think, about 15 years ago. Do you know if it's still available anywhere? Oh, sure. Oh, my. You want me to send you a copy? Oh, that would be wonderful. Of course I will. Oh, my. Yes, well, we, we can play it on uh, our station. Great. Well, you want to tell me where to send it? Absolutely. I will. Oh, please. I will have Dwayne give you his address. Okay. And um, Actually, I can walk over to her house probably. <laughs> <laughs> this is about eight blocks away. Well, you can always do that. Drop over to you, <laughs> Dwayne, and uh, we'll be happy to include it in our interview segment. That would be wonderful. Super. Anytime. Just make just call and make sure I'm home. 
I could even meet you halfway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be super. That'd be great. Wonderful, because uh, uh, it really it turned out quite well, and we're we're proud of it. Uh, as I say, Mary Jo's husband Harold Grogan sings Vaughn's part on uh, a lot of the songs we do. A Vaughn Monroe medley and a lot of the big band songs. So I think you'll really enjoy it. Well, maybe Dwayne could ball and uh, make a copy of your live broadcast. That way we'd love to include those, too, if you don't mind. No, I'll have to dig those out. I, I have not organized my CDs. Yeah. But I will try to find those. That'd be oh, fun. that'd be wonderful. Did the Moon Maids sing with the Moon Men? There were four of them and four of us. Uh -huh. And we would sing a lot of background music for Vaughn, like a choir almost. Uh huh. I noticed on nice some of the songs that I heard on on uh, the recordings that they mentioned the Moon Maids, but not the Moon Men. And it seems like you're you're mixed in behind the orchestra there together. Well, we are on some things. I know. I know a, lo a lot of the broadcasts uh, we did. Uh, with the four men and the four girls. Uh, huh. I'm trying to... Oh, a lot of... Uh, oh, I can't think of the names of them now, but uh, I have the CDs from those broadcasts. And I, I could, if I can find time to dig those out, they would be interesting for you to play. Oh, it'd be great to hear. They... they could not compare with the Moon Maids, but it was interesting. <laughs> yes, it was. They did Cool Water, and uh, of course, Ghost Riders in the Sky, and uh, then the, the eight of us did quite a few uh, songs, uh, not only background for Vaughn, but, you know, singing some things, uh, eight bars by ourselves. It, I'll have to dig those out. I haven't listened to them in a long time. Oh, well, those would be wonderful to hear. Well, uh, give me a call whenever it's convenient. And I'll well, I'll tell you what, Dwayne, why don't you <laughs> call me and come and pick up this uh, CD that was made about 15 years ago, and in the meantime, I can be looking through for the other things. I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay. Now, I'm going most and, and morning. By the way, the I, little college that you went to in Arlington, was it Arlington State College? No, it, it was even before then. <laughs> it oh. was called North Texas Agriculture. Oh, yes. That became later Arlington State, and Arlington right. State became University of Texas at Arlington. Right. Actually, and I taught there for 37 years. Oh, you did? Yes. <laughs> what did you teach? I taught language, primarily Germanic languages. What years? Oh, first through graduate school. No, but I meant what, what oh, year? Oh, what years? From, uh, oh, I retired in 1997, and so I came there about 1960. 1960? Uh-huh. Well, you probably knew a lot of the teachers that I knew then. Probably so. Oh, my goodness. Well, I didn't realize that. Small uh, world. Texan by birth or? 
No, Dwayne from Nebraska, and he moved oh. down to Texas. Yeah, Texan by choice. Oh, good. You got here as soon as you could, right? You betcha. <laughs> My wife was born in San Antonio, so she put me straight as quick as she could. Yeah. You remember where you were when you heard the uh, news that Vaughn passed away? Yes, I was visiting a friend in New Jersey. Uh, when we moved back to Texas, it was the 1970. Uh, oh, gosh, I'm trying to remember what year Vaughn died now. Was it 60? I thought 73, I thought. 73? Mm-hmm. That sounds about right, because we moved back to Texas around 1970, and I was up in New Jersey visiting a friend um, whose husband had been a saxophonist with the band, and we heard the news over the radio at the same time. And uh, it was such a shock. I, I knew that he hadn't been well, but uh, he, he was such a, looking back now, such a young man, and at the time seemed older. You know what I mean when you hear of somebody passing away. If they're 15 or 20 years older than you, you think, well, they've had a good full life. But then when you get to that age, it's not that old. But uh, it was really a, a shock to all of us. I understand the uh, Moon Maids reunited and performed together in Florida just recently. All anybody has to do is to ask us to sing, and we sing. Yes, that was just about a month ago we got back home. Oh, boy. Well, tell us about it, it. It really was. I told them, I said, if this is indeed our swan song, we couldn't have gone out with more flair. It was just absolutely beyond our wildest dreams. Well, we hadn't sung together for 15 years, so we were all a little bit nervous, of course, until we... Uh, first got together in Palm Beach in the hotel and heard that first chord and gave us goosebumps. We still had the blend. And it was just absolutely um, like a Cinderella story. Well, I was reading one of the uh, reviews, and uh, I'm going to read it for our audience here uh, to show how wonderful you, you folks were. It says this. The harmonizing of the Moon Mates was bright and fresh. They performed with pizzazz, and June took the microphone for some lead vocalizing as the girls reprised a medley of songs, Ballerina, Red Roses for a Blue Lady, Ghost Riders, Tangerine, There I've Said It Again, and uh, it goes on and on, uh, and they've already invited you back for next year, I understand. Yes, I think they were kind of surprised uh, that we sounded uh, as well as we did because, uh, first of all, of our ages. Um, usually, as voices get old, they start to kind of quiver and shake a little with a wide vibrato. And, of course, in group singing, you have to sing a very straight tone and uh, I think everybody was very pleasantly surprised. The uh, conductor of the Palm Beach Pops 62-piece orchestra, by the way, it was just Goodness. wonderful, um, was highly complimentary. And 
the last evening that we were there, he came over and said, you'll be back. And I said, do you promise? <laughs> and he said, yes, I promise. So I think there are enough people left um, of the right age group, I should say, to still appreciate music from the 40s uh, when, when music had meaning and uh, sentimental words and we sang one uh, one evening at a country club in Stewart, Florida, near Stewart, and what a joy it was to feel the love coming up from that audience. And we could we could see them. It was they were very close, uh, sitting on chairs in a big room, and to see them holding hands and uh, mouthing the words along with us and uh, saying later that they first fell in love to that song or they went dancing. Oh they just, I think the people are hungry for this kind of music. We loved having you. I loved it. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed our interview on part one of this Classics and Curios showcase special with Vaughn Monroe, his orchestra, and the Moon Maids featuring June Hyatt Ratone. Please join us again next time when we'll spotlight Vaughn Monroe on his Camel Caravan radio show, along with Kitty Callan, June Batone, the Moon Maids, and a collector tune or two. This is Dwayne Keelstrip leaving you with this thought. Whether it's leading a band or leading a child, remember, as Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote, every calling is great when greatly pursued. Good night and God bless. This is Yesterday USA. Welcome to Cowboy Corner. I'm Red Stegall here in the bunkhouse with Buck and Badger and all the boys for a return visit from my good friend Paul and Susie Luxinger. They live up in Oklahoma and they still ply the rodeo trail. They're both rodeo contestants, former rodeo contestants, but now they have a ministry to the cowboys. Ride with us through the rangelands of the West as we explore the life of the American cowboy through his poetry and his music. 
Cowboy Corner is brought to you by our friends at Farm and Ranch Healthcare, a leader in healthcare coverage for rural America. By Cowboys and Indians Magazine, bringing you the beauty, the grandeur, and the drama of the American West eight times a year. By Conoco Lubricants. You got a problem? Conoco has the solution. By the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, America's premier Western Heritage Museum located in Oklahoma City. And by Phillips 66 Lubricants. Phillips 66, trusted people, trusted products. Boys, before we talk to Paul and Susie, I want to do one of our songs called 40 and Found. Let's do it. This morning looked across the great expanse I had to stop and thank the Lord for giving me the chance To make my way a horseback in a country most ain't seen Where the Coleman County Cowboys on our way to Abilene Oh, the coosie ain't too grumpy and the cattle ain't too wild And the stories round the wagon even make a trail boss smile I wouldn't trade my hot roll for a feather bed in town And on top of all of this I'm getting 40 and found I tell you boys I'm lucky because punching is my trade In my corral are memories of all the friends I've made Like my buddy Curly Jackson and my pal Dakota Slim If the boss don't want to pay me, shoot, I reckon I'd pay him Cause the coosie ain't too grumpy and the cattle ain't too wild And the stories around the wagon even make the trail boss smile now I wouldn't trade my hot roll for a feather bed in town And on top of all of this I'm getting 40 and found Cricket badger Change our clothes and shave and cut our hair. We'll probably hoop it up a bit and raise a little cane. Then take our beds and saddles back to Texas on a train. Oh, the coosie ain't too grumpy and the cattle ain't too wild. And the stories around the wagon even make a trail boss smile. Now I wouldn't trade my hot roll for a feather bed in town. And on top of all of this, I'm getting. 40 and found I wouldn't trade my hot roll for a feather bed in town and on top of all of this I'm getting 40 and found Forty and found that means forty dollars a month and room and board and sometimes that's pretty sparse but that's cowboy wages of those days and it was a it was a good life you folks stay with us. We'll be right back with more of Cowboy Corner and a return visit from my dear friends Paul and Susie Luxinger. We're going to talk about rodeo and a whole bunch of other stuff. Don't go anywhere. Hang on. Timing is everything when it comes to farming, so make sure you can rely on your equipment all season long by using Phillips 66 Super HD2 motor oil. 
Every year, farmers all over the country turn to Super HD2 because of its consistent performance in the field. And with outstanding protection against wear, rust, and corrosion, Super HD2 meets or exceeds the warranty requirements for most farm engines and transmissions. So stop by a dealer today and pick up some Super HD2 and ask about the full line of Phillips 66 lubricants, including our outstanding HD tractor fluid. That's Phillips 66 Super HD2. Serving America's veterans. I'm Bob Kingsley with news for U.S. military veterans and their families. Want to accelerate your career? The Department of Veterans Affairs provides education benefits to help veterans advance their career potential. Benefits can be used for degree and certificate programs, flight instruction, on-the-job training, and more. Call VA at 1-888-GI-BILL-1 or visit online at va.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, serving America's veterans. For the past 10 years, some of you folks have been calling us wanting to buy the interviews that we've done on Cowboy Corner. We can't sell you the CDs because of all the music and so forth. So we took 21 of those interviews from folks like Rex Allen and Ben Johnson and Richard Farnsworth and so forth and put them all into a book called Cowboy Conversations. And it's our interviews for the last 10 years, 21 of them. We'd love for you to have a book. Give us a call at 1-800-420-1200 or log on to our website at cowboycorner.com. You're listening to Cowboy Corner. I'm Red Stegall here in the bunkhouse with Buck and Badger and all the boys and a return visit from my dear friends, Paul and Susie Luxinger. And I'm so glad that you guys came back. It's well, been great. Well, thank you, Brad. And Susie, you made the mistake of telling Badger you liked his coffee. Oh, I know, and he <laughs> just poured it on. It's that funny it's stuff he puts in there, though. I don't know about <laughs> Badger, back up. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm so glad y'all came back. We had such a good time the last time you were here. And, and uh, one thing about Badger, he can fix a beef steak. So if really? you want to stay after we get through here, oh, well, he'll yeah. fix some to eat. Well, good. We, yeah. we, like, we, we can eat a side of beef. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, last time you were here, we were talking about your, your granddad and about rodeoing. Mm -hmm. And rodeo changes. Uh, it changes with every generation. As things improve and the image of rodeo improves, and we're constantly trying to find ways for the cowboy to make more money because he doesn't have a guarantee. <laughs> he uh, strictly is on his own. Mm -hmm. He has to pay his own expenses. And whatever he wins, uh, he gets to utilize however he wants to. If he doesn't win, he has to bum off his buddies. <laughs> I'll tell you a story that happened to me the first time I went to Denver, that old round Holiday Inn down there on the freeway. Mm -hmm. And so I got me a room. And as you well remember, Susie, we used to stay up all night singing cowboy <laughs> songs. <laughs> and oh, we'd have some good times. Every foot, every square inch of that baseboard was taken up, I yep, guarantee you. Yeah, but people sitting. There were some times that it didn't sure didn't want to get up in the morning, uh -huh. I'll tell you that. But <laughs> first time I'd ever experienced this was I got this room and it had two beds in it. And we partied all night long and all of a sudden these cowboys started stripping those beds down and taking the mattresses <laughs> off of the box springs. <laughs> and I didn't say anything, I just looked. And I realized that they were there's going to be a bunch of people in my <laughs> spending the night in my room that night. And Goat Mayo got up on a chair and he said, "Hey, wait a minute. Red paid for this room. Leave him a place to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> At least be kind enough to give him a place to lay down. Oh, and all over the country, Pendleton, Cheyenne, uh, <laughs> Sydney, Iowa, it didn't make any difference where we went. 
you know, uh, my room was always open to cowboys that needed a place to stay. That's and a lot good. of them just slept on the floor. Mm -hmm. But uh, the friendships and the relationships that I developed during that 17 years that I played rodeos are the most important years of my life. And I, I still retain the majority of those friends, like you guys. You know, I just, I just love it, and I treasure every single minute of it. Yes. That's well, the people sure. you meet rodeoing are so interesting. You know, when I first started, I was uh, I was born in Montana, and we moved to New Mexico, and then when I went back to college, went to Bozeman, and that's where I started rodeoing. And got hooked up with Bane Reynolds. He was 1961 all-around champion, and still rodeoing. This would have been in 1977, 78, mm -hmm. and uh, so he was on up there in years. And, and uh, but he he rodeoed the old time way. We'd go out to Pendleton. We'd stay at the Severe Brothers Saddle Rink. Yes, sir. And oh, the stories you talk about a bunkhouse. Now they had a bunkhouse out there, and it was <laughs> really a saddle ever. shop. But <laughs> there was kids, guys, young kids sleeping, laying everywhere out there. And it would just stay that way the whole week out there at Pendleton. And of course, the letter buck room. That was a little wild out there. <laughs> <laughs> they let her buck in there. And, uh, you know, just all through the, the different, ro each rodeo had its own personality, and it's funny how the different people you'd relate to that rodeo, that particular rodeo, so like the Severe Brothers up there. And you said something, Red, you know, every 10 years it's like rodeo changes, and me being raised in town, coming in and then marrying into a rodeo family that was really part of the foundation of the PRCA. In fact, John's name's on that letter of those cowboys that struck yes. it at Boston and says, you know, we're gonna compete for prize money. It's amazing, people don't realize they just gave them five bucks to compete in an event back in them days. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's crazy, we, we just, so we take a lot for granted, but today, you know, these young guys are talking about sponsors and they got these patches all over their shirts yes. and you know, and it's like, I, I was still from that generation that said, hey, I'm gonna do it myself, you know, and there's, there's just something about that, knowing that you did it, didn't need anybody's help. Yep. And that sounds like cowboy pride to me. Well, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. That's the way as a I wife, yeah. as, as a wife, I'd like to have a little bit of security, you know, <laughs> knowing that uh, we got a little money coming in. But, but you know, Red, that's the way it always has been. Rodeo cowboys make sure they got a good school teaching wife at home so they can get their entry fees paid. Why, sure. That's <laughs> no, the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> and then she's off in the summertime so she can go with him and help drive. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about Benny Reynolds, you've heard the story, of course, when he was on Name That Tune. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't but know about that. You didn't? Uh-uh. Yeah, Benny was on Name That Tune, and uh, Tom Kennedy was the host, and so he played. Benny hadn't won a thing. He hadn't recognized <laughs> one single tune. <laughs> and so Tom said, I'm going to give you one more chance. You know, you need to name this tune real quick. Mm -hmm. And they played a little bit of the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> And Benny said, I don't know the name of that song, but it means bareback riders get ready. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Everybody remembered him because he said, yep, nope. <laughs> That's all he'd say, yep, nope. <laughs> so we used to enjoy seeing him and, and oh, enjoy yeah. visiting with him. And those, yeah. those times down the road, and, and uh, I remember very well the days that uh, Reba would get to play the rodeos that we played. Mm -hmm. Gosh, they were great days. Yes, they were. <laughs> A lot of them but, really hot, <laughs> but yeah. they were good. <laughs> I remember the first time I met Reba, I, was, I had rode Charlie's horse, her first husband's horse at Salt Lake, and won some money on him, so I owed him mountain money, and, and I saw him at Cheyenne, we just headed to Cheyenne, and I saw uh, Charlie there, so I ran over there, and, and uh, there was Reba, and I'd heard about her, but yeah. she, you know, this is 19... Oh, yeah, she... 
was never born than the one they called a brute the horse that he was looking for was in chute number eight he walked up very slowly put his hand up on the gate we knew he was a thoroughbred when he pulled a sack of dukes from the inside pocket of his continental suit well he rolled himself a quirly and he let it stand in there Blew himself a smoke ring and he watched it disappear. We thought he must be crazy when he opened up the gate. Standing just inside was 1,500 pounds of hate. The buckskin tried to run him down, but the stranger was too quick. He stepped aside and threw his arms around the horse's neck. And he pulled himself upon the back of the horse they called a brute. Set like he was born there in his continental suit. The brute's hind end was in the air, his front end on the ground. Kicking and a squealing, trying to shake the stranger down. But the stranger didn't give an inch, he came to ride the brute. And he came to ride the buckskin in a continental suit. Well, I turned around to look at Jim, and he was watching me. He said, I don't believe the crazy things I think I see, but I think I see the outlaw, the one they call the brute, ridden by a cowboy in a continental suit. The brute came to a standstill, ashamed that he'd been rode by a city cowboy in some continental clothes. The stranger took his money, and we don't know where he went. We don't know where he came from, and we haven't seen him since. The moral of the story, never judged by what they wear. Underneath some ragged clothes could be a millionaire. Everybody listen, don't be fooled by this galoot. This sure enough wrong buster in a continental suit. I love to hear Marty Robbins sing. He was a... What a great, great artist he oh, was, man. great poet. You think about no no pitch machines, no doing it over and over and over, not all the things that we have Punching, to help us. I remember them. those days, Susie. Oh, I can imagine you can. <laughs> man, you had to be a singer. I remember the first time I, uh, I recorded in Nashville, and uh, Harold Bradley was leading the band. Mm -hmm. And I started singing this song, and, and Harold said, hey, hey, guys, hang on just a minute. We're not following Red. 
and which meant that I wasn't singing <laughs> in the meter, and uh, he wasn't going to embarrass me because he was working for me. He just going to let me know in a gentle kind of way that I wasn't paying any attention to the meter. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget him for that, and I, mm, I treasure that, that nice. because uh, he really took good care of me. That's a good way to put it. Pake, uh, the other day, talking about Mari Robbins, he, we did the service at Cheyenne there last night. We'd always do the first service there, and uh, Pake just shows up. Yeah, with, <laughs> yeah. his, with his box in his track and says, uh, could I sing? I want to sing Master's Call. <laughs> sing Master's Call. <laughs> Where can call. I put my CDs down? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> uh, well, when did you start traveling with the, with the family? How old were you? Oh, boy, I got left home a lot. You know, I uh, they tell stories where they were gone three or four weeks at a time. You know, they'd go out in California and around and rodeo. And, and one of my cousins said the other day, she said, Susan, you always wanted to stay home. And I, I guess I chose that. I stayed with the neighbor and stayed with my grandma. But I didn't start singing with the family until I was about in the seventh grade. Uh, we had a Kiowa cowboy band up at Kiowa, Oklahoma, we didn't have enough kids for a marching band, so Mama was working as a superintendent, a, a secretary for him, and Clark Ryan, who helped Ruba get uh, a lot done in the in the music business, helped us all. He was our art teacher, and he was a, a honky tonk player, and so we looked around. There was quite a bit of talent there. People, kids was wanting to play music, and so she got some money together and bought some equipment, and we started a country and western band. And I remember when I'd get up and sing the probably the first one I started singing was Snowbird by Ann Murray and Reba would sing with me. She sang the first verse, I'd sing the second one, then she'd sing harmony. And I tell you what, my knees would knock and I thought this is not for me, not for me. And I'd <laughs> sing one song maximum by myself. And as long as I was in the background, I was all right. I was okay. And Pake was the lead singer and me and Reba were the backup singers. That's hard to believe. <laughs> and then in 1984, it rocked on. I went to school, was valedictorian in my class, uh, followed a hairy-legged boy up to Oklahoma State University, majored in accounting. You know, that was too hard for me. It just wasn't what I needed to be doing. You know, it wasn't my calling. So I got a minor in personnel management and got out of college and sent out resumes all over the place. And one, one response was an oil lease company in Oklahoma City and I worked for him almost a year. In the meantime, Paul and I met at the Myriad one, one Friday or Saturday night when Reba was doing the dances up there. And 11 months later, we got, got married. I started singing with Reba, 80 to 82, as a backup singer, wouldn't get out in front of people. But in the midst of, when, after we got married in 1984, three years after our marriage uh, had begun, we went to a church uh, in Atoka, Oklahoma, and uh, I felt like God was calling me to sing for him. And read it was the first time that I really ever had a purpose for my singing. And it made all the difference in the world because it didn't matter to me who I sang for. You know, they used to have to talk to me for 10 minutes to get me to sing a song in front of family <laughs> at Thanksgiving. Pake always brings that up. He says, really? Have you seen Susie sing? You can't believe the difference. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a break right now. You folks stay with us. We'll be right back with more of Cowboy Corner and my special guest, Paul and Susie Luxing. Two new exhibits open in October at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City, and both feature art by Native Americans. Opening October 13th is Reflections After Lewis and Clark, 
contemporary Native American art from the Montana Museum of Art and Culture, followed on October 21st by the National Cowboy Museum exhibit titled Indian Modernism, Selections from the Silberman Collection. For details, visit nationalcowboymuseum.org. The National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, preserving history, making memories. Hey there, this is your old buddy Red Stegall. And for many months now, I've been telling you about my friends at Farm and Ranch Healthcare, a leader in healthcare coverage for rural America. Now just think about this. Have you ever paid on insurance for years only to find yourself being canceled out or the price jumped up so high you can't afford it when you really need it the most? Well, that's the reason I keep telling you to call my friends at Farm and Ranch Healthcare. They give you a great plan for your dollar, and they're there when you really need them. You know, their plans kind of remind me of a good shotgun. You keep it put away most of the time, but when you really need it, it's there. So friends, grab yourself a pencil and give my partners at Farm and Ranch Healthcare a call at 1-800-633-6508. Let me give you that number again. That's 1-800-633-6508 and tell them old Red sent you. Listening to Cowboy Corner, I'm Red Stegall here in the bunkhouse with Buck and Badger and all the boys and my very special guest, my very dear friends, Paul and Susie Luxinger. And we were talking about experiences and, and your family. Uh-huh. And Paul, you wanted to say something about Paik? Oh, when well, we did that service at Cheyenne, Paik was there singing and he had his girlfriend there and, and she'd come up later and grab Susie and tell him what she yeah, said. Yeah, uh, well, during the performance after he sang Master's Call for all these people at Cheyenne, I come up to him and, and whispered in his, in his ear and I said, Paik, I love you. And it, this just proves to me, Red, that we need to be sure and tell each other how much we love each other, I mean, you know, especially in the cowboy way. Well, you know, I told you when we got married or I told you when we were 10 you know I, I told you I, I loved you and if I change my mind I'll tell you about it but we all need to be told that that we you know that we're loved and that afternoon they went to lunch and uh, she said uh, Paik looked at her and he said Susie told me that she loved me big old tears welled up in his eyes and that touched his heart so much and I, I was so glad that I did it because you know what we're not promised of the next second and we got to live every moment right now and be fulfilled in that moment and do everything that we can to show people that we love them it's so important yes it is and one of the great things to me that's happened in in the world in the last generation or so is that men are able to hug each other Hmm. without somebody else thinking something about it or them thinking something (laughs) about it. that's exactly right and every human being needs a good hug a day Mm -hmm. yes i don't care where you are what you're doing Mm-hmm. And if you really care about somebody, take the time to tell them that you care about them. I always what, love you, yeah. Red, because you always give a big old hug and a big old <laughs> slurpy kiss right there on the side of my cheek. <laughs> Go ahead, Paul. What's Did Buck and Badger teach you that? <laughs> no. Uh, first time I tried to hug Badger, he ran like a rabbit. <laughs> He's gotten kind of used to it now. <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't make any difference uh, how much money we have. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any difference how we measure success if we don't have a harmonious relationship with the people we truly care about life does not have much value to that's it. right <laughs> that's right and so we need to we need to take that time i don't know how many times i've seen it happen in the rodeo business uh, i never won a world's championship it was always my goal i always felt like i was a failure couldn't figure that out I said god you know man i had all this 
stuff going for me. Why? And then I'd see, I remember Jeff Copenhaver. He's 1975 world's champion calf roper. And he, he said he was sitting on the edge of his hotel bed looking at that gold buckle. And he said, is this all there is? And I'll, I can I can just go down the list and name you the guys that said the same thing. But here in my old age, I've realized that it's not the end that means anything. It's the journey. And that's what John taught us is that it's the way you live your life every day, sitting on that horse and being thankful, just thankful. <laughs> and appreciating yeah. the, the handiwork and appreciating the, the wonderful country that mm -hmm. we live mm -hmm. in. No. And getting to know people. I mean, you say handiwork, and not only in creation of the earth and everything and what we get to look at, but how God has put people together and their personalities and getting to travel all across the United States. We've been so blessed, and you know, being in the music business and rodeo business and cattle ranching, to be able to go and meet and visit people and to get to know them even in their little how do you call it? Egocentric ways? <laughs> Idiosyncrasies. Yeah. We live in the greatest country in the, United, in the world, and the cowboy people just make the U.S. what it is. I mean, look at Will Rogers and what he, he went all over the world being a cowboy. You know, who would ever thought that? The rodeo business has exploded because of cowboys. There's just something about every man, woman, child, there's a little bit of cowboy in all of us. You know, well, uh, when, when we all lived on farms and ranches, we depended on each other. Mm -hmm. As a result, we became closer. And we also learned respect. Mm. And as we moved to the cities, uh, in the state of Texas, in 1938, 70% of all the people in our state lived on farms and ranches. Today, mm. it's exactly the opposite. Only 30% live on farms and ranches. Mm. So when you move to the city, it becomes a me society. Mm. simply because of the way it is. It's not because people change, it's because their situation changes. Right. So we lose a little bit of that, well, what do I need to do to help my neighbor today? And uh, when we talk about the world of rodeo, we're talking about people who primarily came from that background, whether they, whether they grew up in a small town or out in the country, mm -hmm. they still have that attitude. Right. And so you bring all those people together, they have so much in common. So as we talk about rodeo, you know, rodeo today is a, uh, a fast-paced game. It's a high-dollar game. Not everybody wins the high dollars, but the, but the money is there for those who persevere and hone their skills down to the point where they can be the champions. Mm -hmm. And so we lost a lot of bit, little bit of that family attitude. That, you know, we used to stand in the lobby of the uh, uh, Sheraton in Oklahoma City uh -huh. during the finals, you could see everybody you oh hadn't seen God. all year long. <laughs> I know everybody it. in rodeo. I know at it. some time or another in that 10 days came through that lobby. Well, we go to Las Vegas now. Even though the money's better, if you don't stay in the same hotel or sit beside them, you never see them. You never see them. And I miss those days. I, I miss do those too, people. Red. That's I do. A, you know, Red, they've had this, uh, they call it the Pro Tour now. And it started in 1985 is when they experimented with it, and they shut it down for a couple of years, and they come back with it now. But uh, and of course, in '85 and '86, I was in the on that side of it. I was one of the top 15, and man, the sponsors are coming mm -hmm. along, and it was a neat thing. I thought that was the way to go. And then this last stretch, I'm retired. I'm done. I'm the old man now, sitting on the sidelines. And I didn't understand why Roy Duvall and some of those old timers were so adamant about letting everybody enter the rodeo. If you have a PRCA card, 
you have a right to enter Denver, Fort Worth, San Antonio, and Houston. And the reason is, is because, like you just got done saying, when you went to Denver, you'd see all these old cottages. You go to Denver, you'd see all of them from the north. You went to Houston, you'd see all of them from the south. San Antonio, you'd see all of them from around Texas. Every one of those rodeos. Well, nowadays, it's just the top 40 or 50 cowboys. Yeah. And us old-timers, we just can't go unless you got somebody, you know, you want to buy a ticket. That's... That's a sin to buy a ticket if you're an extra-rodeo cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's still a great life. It's still a great yeah, way of life, yeah. and uh, we're very grateful for it. We're grateful for the world of rodeo. We're mm -hmm. grateful to all the people who still make it work. But uh, there are, as things change, we do miss it. You know, we, we used to sit around in hotel rooms in Nashville during the disc jockey convention. Mm -hmm. we, knew, we knew everybody in the world of country music, and it's not that way anymore. Mm. No. Uh, not many of the major acts even live in Nashville. <laughs> you don't get together for the disc jockey convention anymore. <laughs> you don't meet the disc jockeys. You don't become friends. Mm. Well, that's not to say that's all bad. No. Because everything has to change. Everything Nothing can changes. stay the same. Mm. But the thing that's important to me is that you guys are going out and you're talking to folks about something that does remain the same. <laughs> and that's the love of the Lord. And yeah. you're leading your life with lessons you learned from the good book to make sure that your life is harmonious. Mm -hmm. You can't influence everybody's life. But it's, I like to tell this story about the guy walking along the beach in Mexico where all of the starfish had washed up on the sand and he's throwing them back in and somebody came up and said you can't make a difference and he said i just made a difference to that one <laughs> <laughs> that's right I, I love the acronym red that says the what the bible the word bible stands for and it means basic instructions before leaving earth so <laughs> that's the instruction manual i'm just going to go by it well you guys are doing a marvelous job and, and i'm proud of you and i'm proud that you're my friends and i'm so glad you stopped by to see us at the bunkhouse and I know these folks that are listening to us will look forward to seeing you at the next rodeo and buying those CDs. There we go. <laughs> Thank come, you, Red. Come back and see us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Buck and Badger. Yep. You guys. Adios. Can I have a stay? cup of coffee to go? <laughs> he doesn't have any styrofoam. Oh. <laughs> but you can take one of our ten cups. There we go. You folks stay with us. We'll be right back with more of Cowboy Corner. The October issue of Cowboys and Indians magazine is on your newsstand right now. You'll be able to recognize it immediately because Matthew McConaughey is on the cover. There's a photo essay about California's missions. There's an article about Australia's cowboys, and you'll really enjoy that. There's a story about Native American bronzes by sculptor Dave McGarry. Look at the fall fashions, France's horse region, and you can tour Vancouver in the middle of the Cowboys and Indians magazine. And we have an article about the road to the NFR, the National Finals Rodeo. Asleep at the wheels, Ray Benson, the man who keeps the spirit of Western swing music alive. There's a very nice article about Ray. You'll enjoy reading about him. And remembering artist Joe Beeler, one of the greatest artists of all time, a very special man. Cowboys and Indians Magazine, bringing you the beauty, the grandeur, and the drama of the American West eight times a year. Timing is everything when it comes to farming, so make sure you can rely on your equipment all season long by using Phillips 66 Super HD2 motor oil. 
Every year, farmers all over the country turn to Super HD2 because of its consistent performance in the field. And with outstanding protection against wear, rust, and corrosion, Super HD2 meets or exceeds the warranty requirements for most farm engines and transmissions. So stop by a dealer today and pick up some Super HD2 and ask about the full line of Phillips 66 lubricants, including our outstanding HD tractor fluid. That's Phillips 66 Super HD2. You're listening to Cowboy Corner. I'm Red Steagall here in the bunkhouse with Buck and Badger and all the boys. And I want to start this portion of our show off with a poem by Wallace McRae called One More Shipping Day. The crew has all been mustered from around the neighborhood a good half hour before the stated time. The boss had said 6.30, but every hand there understood on time or being late are both a crime. So we're smoking and we're joking as we idle in the dark. Uh, we've all cinched up and bridled for the ride. In the eastern sky, the only hint of light's the feeble spark of Venus up above the far divide. Are the horses, they are nervous and impatient at the wait, each idly restrained by men in shaps. So they shuffle and they snuffle, test the near rain towards the gate. They can smell and hear the cattle in the traps. Some have caught rotation horses though the best one they've acquired for steady is the rule of thumb today. The boss will ride already. We all thought he'd been retired. It's his final gift for that old mount, I'd say. You can see the frosty grass now in the pre-dawn's eerie light, and there's just a hint of light above the hill. To the west, a coyote caterwauls farewell to his friend night. But except for him and us, the world is still. It hadn't been no banner year. We didn't get much rain. But when we needed some, the Lord come through. Looks as if our outfit will pay the bills without much strain if the cattle weigh like we all think they'll do. To a man, we'd shy away from any show of celebration of another round of practicing our art. Won't be no great orations. There's a proud and choked sensation in every cowboy's throat and every heart. When they cross the scale today, we can carve another notch, tally up another year that's filled with pride, with three raps and a hooey, drop the flag and read the watch, bring on the snow, we'll take it all in stride. The boss has caught the stirrup, Reddy's ears are at attention, in my mind I hear a piper far away. Another day, another dollar, the sun is making its ascension, we're mounting up for one more shipping day. There are certain times in the year in a cowboy's life when it just doesn't get any better. I'd like to do a song now by Ian Tyson called Tom Blassen Game. And for about uh, probably 80 years, Tom's saddled up for one more shipping day. Here's Ian. Tom's the name, Tom Blassen Game. 85 years in the saddle. Seen 85 years through a cow horse's ear. Whilst chasing the wild bullvines Yeah, you thought they're all gone There's still one hanging on Tied hard and fast to the memory And might near the only one Could tell us how she got done Whilst chasing the wild bullvines there's ten million cattle on ten thousand hills and No man can ride for them all 
successes, the five L's, the big double O's, to the matadors in Texas, and Lord only knows what a wonderful life in a wonderful game. Here on you, Tom. Tom, he claims that a man's true joy is in the work that a man likes to do. And if I understand, Tom's a right joyous man. And Tom, he's looking at you. The cross S's, the five L's, and the big double O's. To the matadors in Texas, and Lord only knows what a wonderful life in the wonderful game here on your Tom Blazin' game was the Cowboys Cowboy. He uh, worked on the J.A. Ranch for over 50 years. He lived at, down at the Campbell Creek Camp all by himself. His wife lived in town. And Tom was a cowboy to the core. And he spent lots of nights in the bedroll. And I want to do a poem that I wrote oh, several years ago called Bedroll. There's a hole in the wagon sheet big as my head where a coosie run under a tree. And last week it rained and run right in that hole. Probably nobody noticed but me, because that was the morning I jingled the horses. It rained, and my bed was just fine, but it was the first one to go in the wagon, and the rest of them stacked up on mine. Now, last winter we put a new floor in that wagon. We planked it with tongue and groove oak. She's tight as a drum and won't leak a drop, so the bed on the bottom got soaked. Now, canvas is good about turning the dew as long as it's stretched the right way, but I guess something happens and it sort of breaks down sitting in water all day. Your bed's usually warm and a nice place to be, a cowpuncher's private domain. But it's colder than hell in a bedroll that's wet. You're better off out in the rain. So I put on my slicker and sat by the fire, burned all the dry wood in the stack, the fire made me drowsy once I dozed off and woke up in the mud on my back. Just before sunup, I crawled in that bed. Couldn't sleep because my feet were so numb. Then Coosie was cussing I burned all his wood, so I got up and gathered him some. Now, I ain't one to argue and create a fuss, and I don't get my head in a fog, but it's taken a week for me to get her dried out, and last night I slept like a log. This morning it's thundering and carrying on. It's already started to rain, and I know for a fact Coosie ain't fixed that hole. 
and I ain't going through that again. Everyone saddled and ready to ride except me. I'll be here a while, because I want to make sure when they load up that wagon, my bed's on the top of the pile. <laughs> if you've ever slept in a wet bedroom, you know what I'm talking about. You folks stay with us. We'll be right back with more of Cowboy Corner. Hang on. When I build a fence, I want to use good solid cedar posts and high quality wire. I don't want to have to rebuild it in a couple of years or constantly patch the weak spots where my stock has gone through it. That costs me time and money. I want it done right the first time. And I look at my insurance program the same way. I want to do business with a company that has good solid backing are there as long as I need them and will do what they say they'll do. Well, Farm and Ranch Healthcare is backed by some of the largest and oldest firms in America, and they're here to stay. They're dedicated to making sure that your coverage is adequate, is protected for the long haul, and is affordable. Give my friends at Farm and Ranch Healthcare a call at 1-800-633-6508. You'll sleep better at night knowing that your insurance coverage is on solid ground and that the folks who serve you genuinely care about your family's welfare. That's 1-800-633-6508. Or take a look at their website, farmranchhealthcare.com. It'll be worth your time. Two new exhibits open in October at the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum in Oklahoma City, and both feature art by Native Americans. Opening October 13th is Reflections After Lewis and Clark, Contemporary Native American Art from the Montana Museum of Art and Culture, followed on October 21st by the National Cowboy Museum exhibit titled Indian Modernism, Selections from the Silberman Collection. For details, visit nationalcowboymuseum.org. The National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, preserving history, making memories. You're listening to Cowboy Corner. I'm Red Stegall here in the bunkhouse with Buck and Badger and all the boys. And this portion of our show is brought to you by our friends at Farm and Ranch Healthcare, a leader in healthcare coverage for rural America. And I can tell you, they're folks you can count on. For our song of inspiration, I've chosen one of ours called The Big Circle. The Big Circle has a real special meaning to me. When uh, we laid Carlos Ashley down in his final resting place, it was across the highway from the house where he was born. And all of his folks were there for about four generations. And Carlos made a big circle, trotted a lot faster than we wanted him to. Boys, let's do it for the folks. The cattle were scattered for miles across the plain. Our norther was blowing and threatening rain. Out on the high mesas while searching for strays, we rode at a high lope for most of the day. And we made a big circle and brought them all down through the coolies and draws to the big roundup ground. The river was rising from three days of rain. We brought them through to the headquarters range. Yes, the Brazos was rising from three days of rain. We brought them home to the headquarters range. I was a loner, a drifting cowhand. A girl never figured in my master plan. Came along and you opened my eyes to a feeling I'd never before realized. And we made a big circle and weathered the storm. 
chain Life is complete at the headquarters range Yes, we've partnered up, girl, and I like the change I feel at home at the headquarters range As we ride through life, we are tempted to stray There's someone to guide us and show us the way His orders are simple, believe in his word Shun all that's evil, embrace all that's good If we've made the big circle with a herd of the damned Our souls can be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb And if we ask forgiveness, our lives will be changed We'll join the boss at the headquarters range Yes, if we ask forgiveness, our lives will be changed He'll take us home to the headquarters range We all make a big circle. You know, let's look at everything as we go around, as we make that big circle. Let's make sure we enjoy every day we live. Well, as my old daddy would say, we got this one saucered and blowed. It's time for us to ride on out of here. We got lots of work to do. And on behalf of myself, Red Steagall, and Buck and Badger and all the other boys in the bunkhouse, our producer, Mr. Kirk Teagarden, our executive producer, Miss Nan Kingsley, and the fellow who holds it together for all of us, Mr. Sean Studer. Thanks for riding along with us. We hope we taught you something about the cowboy you didn't know or maybe brought back an old memory. Cowboy Corner is brought to you by our friends at Farm and Ranch Healthcare, a leader in healthcare coverage for rural America. By Cowboys and Indians Magazine, bringing you the beauty, the grandeur, and the drama of the American West eight times a year. By Conoco Lubricants. If you got a problem, Conoco has a solution. By the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum. America's premier Western Heritage Museum located in Oklahoma City. And by Phillips 66 Lubricants. Phillips 66, trusted people, trusted product. If you'd like to add some cowboy poetry and music to your collection, give us a call at 1-800-420-1200 or log on to our website, cowboycorner.com. Well, we got lots of work to do, and Buck, I know you and Badger would rather stay here in the bunkhouse where it's a little bit more comfortable, but let's go, boys. We got a job to do, and we got a short time to do it. You folks join the same time, same station next week for another edition of Cowboy Corner. Adios, y'all. is the golden age of radio. I'm Vic Bertel, and tonight we'll take you on another audio excursion back to radio's formative years. You'll hear the programs that made the era golden. 
and meet people who made those broadcasts a reality. The Golden Age of Radio is brought to you by WTIC and the Cromwell Savings Division of Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank. Hometown friends serving your best banking interests in every way. Now here is your host, Dick Bertel. Good evening, and with me once again is radio collector historian Ed Corcoran. Ed, we're going to uh, turn the tables tonight. I'm going to introduce you to our guest. Hey, that would be different, Dick. Yes, it would. <laughs> now, do you remember Terry and the Pirates? Oh, yes, very well. Do you remember a, a femme fatale by the name of uh, Burma, by any chance? Oh, yeah, do I, do I ever remember mm -hmm. that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the Dragon Lady, only better. Burma, would you greet our audience, please? Well, I'm very pleased to be here. I really am. It's lovely. Oh, you want me? Oh, oh, no, no, no. Oh, if you wanted more Burma. I want yeah, more Burma. Get it more Burma, because it was the one I know that Burma. Oh. <laughs> Whatever guest, that means. Our guest is Francis Cheney. <laughs> Francis Cheney, who played the part of Burma on Terry and the Pirates and countless other characters on countless mm, radio programs throughout that great golden era. Francis Cheney is currently appearing as Bessie Berger in Awake and Sing by Clifford Odets at the Hartford Stage Company. And Francis, it's a pleasure to have you with us tonight here on the Golden Age of Radio. Thank you. How did you get started? Because I know that you and countless other actors and actresses more or less look down on, uh, on radio. Well, I, <laughs> I, uh, I wish we'd known immediately what we got to know very shortly after was that uh, radio for us in those days provided not only a means of earning a living the way nowadays kids starting up in the theater in New York earn their living doing commercials. They've got to somehow find a way to keep body and soul together while they're looking for that great break in the theater. Sure. So sure. in those days there was radio, but some of us were just terribly highfalutin. We weren't going to have any part of it. So I finally got started in radio in the perfect way, because I did. I think it was the Mad Queen Catherine in, in a Shakespeare opus that uh, Earl McGill directed. So that was all right. You see, I could look at my teachers at the neighborhood playhouse with uh, casting with my eyes. Yes, I could, li I could live with myself since I was doing Shakespeare. But very soon after, I'm happy to say, I really got started. I think my very first program was a gangbusters for Phillips H. Lord, and then poor old dear old Phil he decided that I should be the ingenue in a revival of Seth Parker do you remember Seth Parker? and I think he decided he wanted me for that because I couldn't sing he would break up so sitting in the control room <laughs> having me sing little children little children who love the redeemer I can still see his face I think that's what he liked about it but I couldn't <laughs> that's see. a delightful story we've heard many Phillips H. Lawrence stories that's the first time I've ever heard about him breaking up but um, the story of, of, of how you got started the way they they, they uh, did the publicity on you is just amazing oh well <laughs> That, that taught me not to believe your own publicity. <laughs> Tell the story, Francis, please. Well, it was, a, it was a story by Ernest Hemingway called 20 Grand with an all-male cast. Yeah. And I was fresh out of dramatic school, and what did I know? Anything anybody asked me to do, I'd do it. So they said, honey, now you come up to the 
publicity department, and we'll tell you what to wear, and then you come for the show, and you bring your sunsuit, and we're going to take pictures of it. They're going to do a big spread on me, see, Miss Cheney, <laughs> the upcoming budding starlet at CBS. So they had me come with this sunsuit, and I got into my sunsuit, and got all jazzed up, fixed up, and sat on this high chair in front of this microphone. There was they put the director on his knees down on the floor, directing me with a baton. And, I, you know, these men standing around, I didn't know what was going on. I thought, well, that's what they want me to do. I'll do it, sure. And then the picture came out, and I saw it in the magazine. And there was me sitting on the chair with the director down there on the floor, directing with his baton. And underneath the caption said, and Miss Cheney, this is Ernest Hemingway's 20 grand, with Miss Frances Cheney, who wore a sunsuit to give her freedom of movement in her role. <laughs> and I didn't have one word to say, not word one. That's <laughs> so beautiful. There you are. <laughs> just goes to show, as you pointed out, you just can't believe your own publicity. <laughs> well, uh, to break into that, that, that circle, of uh, of actors must have been a very difficult thing, and you were you were well, you were still a teenager, weren't well, you? Well, yes, but I'll tell you, everybody was very very loving and kind. They really were. There was a there was a kind of spirit. It was like a great big giant stock company, and people helped each other. I'll never forget running into Agnes Moorhead on the third floor of NBC, and she was an established performer. And I said, Aggie, they want me to be a soap bubble. <laughs> she said, honey, you go in there and be the best soap bubble you can be. <laughs> so there was that kind of thing. But oh, you, you did have to be pretty good. You really did. You really had to be pretty good. And you also had to be very versatile. Now, one of the things that helped me enormously was I spoke several languages fluently and could do dialect so that I could do, I could be used on a march of time or on a program that needed doubling or tripling or quadrupling if necessary. And I'll never forget being so delighted with myself once. I had to play two or three parts on this kind of news uh, documentary kind of program, which we were always doing, it seems to me. There was always a big spectacular documentary about some event or other. So I had to play two or three parts. And I did two parts, and they said, Francis, can you do a Greek accent? I wasn't sure I could do a Greek accent or not, but I said, oh, well, sure, I can do a Greek you accent. Always you always said You always said yes, of course. And you got Kenny Delmar, whoever knew how to do a Greek accent on the side, see, and he'd coach you, and then by the time you, you had your two or three lines, well, you could do it pretty well. Well, the Greek accent part came in second, I think, in between these other two that I was very good at. One was German and one was something else, you see. So I did the first one, that was fine, and then I did my Greek one. And I was so happy with myself being able to get those words out and do it right. I never did come back for the third. Oh. I just wasn't there. I was just sitting there accepting all the praises from the rest of the cast. I think somebody else had to fill in for me. We, a lot of funny things happened. Those things, those things did happen all the time. And we might point out for the benefit of our uh, younger audience why there were so many uh, dramatic documentaries because there weren't the recordings that we have today. The actualities just didn't exist of, uh, of the people in the news. So you acted yeah. the yeah, part. Well, yeah, the actors, the uh, they sounded better than the original people who spoke the lines because uh, they, they were <laughs> politicians. <laughs> <you know. laughs> we'd, learn, we'd learn how to talk. <laughs> that was our but people it's would play Winston Churchill. Oh, and, uh, yes. 
Oh my! Franklin goodness. Roosevelt, yeah. of course. Yeah, Laguardia, so I guess, was imitated quite often on the sh on the air. Stalin, you know, all the world figures at that time. Were yeah, all it was an accepted technique. And of course, well, I don't today. Know when March of Time ended. How long did that run? You know, of course. Probably into the forties. Yeah, well into the forties, mm. and then it went on TV for a while. Mm. And then, uh, in fact, I have a, a film of that, uh, one of the TV shows they did, and then uh, then it, it kind of faded from sight. Well, let, let's talk about a show in which you had the uh, lead. One of several shows in which you had the lead, <laughs> but. Uh, this was uh, one of the top nighttime programs. Topper. Topper, yes. How well, did the that come about? Well, I had to come and read for it and auditioned along with other people, and they decided that they wanted me to do it. And, of course, the thing that delighted me was to do it with Roland Young because he was marvelous. He was not only lovely in the part, and he was just as good on radio as he was in the movie of it. I don't know... If I mean, probably people listening don't even know what, what that was. Why don't we explain just what the concept was? Uh, might be a good idea, yeah. Ed. Well, uh, the topper? Well, I believe they were the Mr. and Mrs. Kirby were uh, killed in an accident, and then okay. uh, they came back as ghosts, uh, okay. somewhat like the Invisible Man on television today. And then the, they had trick photography so that they, you know, you could sense their presence. They could see uh, things moving, but they were, they, were, they were there, but you didn't see them. And the Roland Young is the only one who knew who they were, and they kept... Um, bugging him uh, all the time, kind of like Jeannie. Uh, yeah, but the, they, were, they, the were, they were a very charming and sophisticated couple. Uh, yeah. The girl was sort of like a Carol Lombard. Yeah, Car actually, she was more, more like a Constance of, Bennett. Of yeah, and, 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 and the man was uh, suave and debonair. And they, they, sort of the character. Yeah. The thin man, yeah. that kind. Yeah, they're right. And, and uh, this top, uh, Roland Young's character was effete and funny and darling and, and lovable. But he really, w he was such a charmer, and I, I, I was just crazy about him. He, um, well, I was just trying to think if I could think of anything special that, well, he was just, he had the same kind of quirks, the same sort of mannerisms in life that he had on the screen, but he was a truly gentle and gentlemanly fellow, and mm -hmm. he, was, he was just an enchantment to work with. I loved doing Topper. How long was that program on the air? I Do don't think it was on terribly long. It seems to me it was only on for a season or two because it was sort of towards the end of the Halcyon radio days because this was after the war, you know, the topper was on. And uh, television began, you know, just a year or two after, didn't it? I mean, yeah, it was right about that time. It wasn't too long after that, so that the topper moved into TV. Yeah, so that it didn't... It didn't last terribly long as a radio show, maybe a couple of seasons, I would say. Ed, do you have a topper in your collection? Yes, Dick, I did manage to grab one here, and uh, we'll hear and see how it sounded. Uh, I just wanted to make one comment that uh, in the movies it was all visual. I just wondered uh, in radio, did you have a difficult time emulating a ghost and that sort of thing? Because that's what you were, you were a ghost. Yeah, uh, you know, that's, uh, oddly enough, toppers should be clearer in my memory than it is, but it really isn't, even though it was one of the later things that I did. I think the war had something to do with it, because as a, to me, Topper always, <laughs> I always remember Topper because of something that happened. Uh, I, it was just before uh, VJ Day. Topper started that summer, mm -hmm. and uh, VJ Day came around, and I remember VJ Day very clearly because a very strange thing happened to me. I got the measles. Now, <laughs> you know, to get the measles is just a dumb thing to get. How I got the measles, I don't know, but I had to miss a show. They had to cancel a show. 
because of me. That would stay in your and mind. It, yes, no. it stayed in my mind very clearly. That and VJ Day. That there was something. Well, somehow VJ Day was more important. Well, we'll refresh your memory right now. <laughs> Topper, hey Topper. Oh, Topper, darling, we're back. Here we go again. The Adventures of Topper, starring Roland Young. <laughs> The Adventures of Topper is a new comedy series based on Thorn Smith's hilarious bestseller and is brought to you by the makers of those bubbly light crisper cornflakes, Post Toasties. And now let's meet Topper. How do you do? My name is Cosmo Topper. Looking at me, you wouldn't think I was suffering from one of the oldest diseases known to man, blonde trouble. And when I say she's out of this world, I mean it. She's a ghost. This blonde ghost I'm referring to is Marion Kirby, who, with her equally frivolous husband, George, have really been complicating my life. With them around, my simplest problems always wind up at disasters. <laughs> I'm beginning to feel better already. Confession is good for the soul. I should have told Melvina everything long ago. No more George and Marion for me. Uh-uh. I spoke too soon. George! Marion! Are you in this room? You needn't think I can't tell just because you're invisible. Oh, speak up, I tell you. Yes, they really aren't here. My nerves must be getting the better of me. Don't mess up my hair. Marion, I knew you were here. Now, no more of your silly pranks. Speak up. I'm no longer a man to be trifled with. <laughs> All right, Topsy. Darling, you're so cute when you're cross. Don't you know it's not ladylike to sneak in on people just because you're a spirit? Now, don't be an old cross patch, Topsy. But you needed some fun. Darling, George and I have a great day planned for you. He ought to be along any minute. Marion, I want you to get this off my chest at once. I'm a new man. I've taken a new lease on life. That's an idea. Lately, you've been looking as if your old one had expired. Man, I mean, I'm not waiting for George to pick me up. I'm not interested in your plans for me today or ever. In fact, I'm leaving this room now to walk, take a walk by myself. Why, Topper, do you think I'll let you go on that note? Aren't you going to stop me? Marion, take your arms away from my neck. Marion, get off my lap this instant. <laughs> Topsy's getting angry. He's getting angry. Mary, I forbid Mary, I for you to sit here. Even if you are invisible, what if my wife should come in? Cosmo, I am in. Oh, Cosmo, you're talking to yourself again. Oh, my poor dear, so burdened down with care. That's not the only thing I'm burdened down with. The best thing for me now would be if I could stretch my legs and take a short walk outside. A walk? Oh, no, Cosmo, you mustn't. Why not? Uh, well, uh, uh, someone is coming. Uh, I mean, uh, will you look so comfortable in that chair? Oh, Cosmo, remember when we were first married, you always asked me to sit on your knee. Well, why don't you ask me to sit there now? Right now, Melvina? Yes, of course. Ask me right now. Well, I can't. There isn't any room. What? 
I mean, I never had much of a lap in the first place. My legs are so short. Oh, Cosmo, what are you saying? <laughs> oh, now, dear, I insist. After all, large or small, a lap's a lap. <laughs> well, if you insist, let me make a suggestion. Well, what is it? Why don't you let me sit on your lap? That's Topper, as uh, portrayed by our guest tonight, Francis Cheney. We'll get back to uh, Francis' story right after this message. One and one usually makes two, but sometimes two things join together and become one. This isn't new math. It's the all-new combination of Cromwell Savings and Farmers and Mechanics Savings Banks. In an age of expanding and changing bank service, these two old friends and neighbors have joined to maintain the greatest customer convenience for thousands of lucky customers. An account at either bank is an account at both, which means these hometown friends can now serve your best interest in every banking way. Full personal banking service, including checking accounts, available January 1st. But you can begin right now with savings and loans at both, because an account at one means an account at both. So one plus one equals a bigger one. The Cromwell Savings Bank Division of Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank has two convenient locations, at the corner of Main and West Streets and the new Cromwell Plaza office near Kmart. Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank have offices in Middletown at Main and College and also on Washington Street. Other locations include Montville and Colchester. Member FDIC. Francis Cheney is our guest tonight here on the Golden Age of Radio, and uh, we're talking about Oh, some delightful programs. We've heard Topper, and uh, you were in Gangbusters. You did oh, a number of yes, Gangbusters shows, indeed Francis. Indeed I did. Indeed I did. What type of uh, part did you play? Well, were you typecast? Oh, well, no, that was another thing about radio. You didn't have to be typecast. You were voice cast. Oh. You know, it depended on what you could do, whether you could sound very young and, and, and high-pitched, or whether you could sound low and sexy or whether you could sound like somebody's mother or whether you were you know or that's what it depended on so that the typecasting depended upon that really and you were typed in a way because people got to know the things that you were good at and those were the things that you were used for but it didn't have anything to do with what you looked like so that very often people who were fat and dumpy could be absolutely adorable and enchanting or mm -hmm. Uh, vice versa. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's about what happened. I found, for me, uh, that that I did mostly, I did mostly nighttime radio, and I think that somehow, uh, either the versatility or the variety or the different kind of voice range seemed to suit that better than just a soap uh, part on a, on a morning soap. And I loved doing the nighttime shows because from they seemed to me more exciting and more fun to do and because they were a complete segment in themselves. There was a class distinction. There, there was. It had to be. Yes, there was. And it, it was different. You, it was sort of, you thought of yourself as more of an actress. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you thought of, of the many more millions of people who were listening at night, too. Well, I, I hadn't really thought about that. I think but they'd pay you a little better, too. They <laughs> did pay you a little better, but you wasn't steady like the soaps in the morning. Same thing is true today in television, you know. You get paid a little better when you do that nighttime yeah, show, but you know. don't have that steady paycheck coming in mm -hmm. like when you're doing a, a soap opera. But it is more fun, and, you know, one makes one's choice about what one wants. Well, you know, we, we uh, talked earlier about the character Burma, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just uh, trying to uh, think in my mind 
Is a program like Terry and the Pirates uh, a soap opera as far no. as the actress is concerned? Or? Well, it was it was a program geared for children. Yeah, it was late afternoon. It was for the kids, and they'd have those that wonderful jingle. What was it? Quake of Puff Wheat Sparkies. <laughs> right. And the opening <laughs> the Terry the and the Pirates, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but the thing that I liked is there I was on this kiddie show, really. Well, it wasn't a kid show, you know, appealing to young, to teenagers and, and, uh, but playing this heavy, sexy character. And it was marvelous, because I could do anything. It was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you know, saying, oh, well, is that, you know, <laughs> sort of a cross between Mae West and uh, God knows what. I haven't a clue. But it was fun. It really was. We had a wonderful time doing that. Really now, fun. Did that originate in New York? Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yes and uh, I'm trying to think now. That program was on on the... Uh, ABC Network, I believe, at 6.15 at night for yeah, a while. Was that live? Yeah. Well, it was live and not live, because they used to do a repeat. Do repeat, yes. yes. And I, I know that because the Chicago announcer would turn in a little earlier, because <laughs> he liked listening to me. I'd get fan mail. From the Chicago <laughs> announcer. <laughs> Where are you now? <laughs> How did the uh, how did the part come about? It was it just a routine audition, or getting it? You mean? Yes, yeah. it, it seems to me it was always that in radio. I, there was never any other way. You never, uh, I never knew any other way. You were called for an audition, and you came, and you auditioned, and you got it. Or you were called directly for the show. Now, when it was a series, you always were called for the for an audition. But when it was just a show, like being called for a particular part on. Uh, district attorney or gangbusters or mole mystery theater. They knew you when you became established. They knew your work well enough. You didn't have to audition at all because they wanted you, and that's 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 the way you got the job. They wanted you. They, you really were cast from memory, then, weren't you? Well, memory, and they heard you. Goodness, yeah. they had enough tapes and records, and I never kept any of them. But people, the the the, the directors had them, and they could listen to them, and, and everyone in the business knew. They knew. They you could recognize voices. My children have learned to recognize people doing commercials. So, yeah. you know, it's, it was exactly the same thing. The thing that, that we have... Uh, by the uh, way, excuse me, yes, you, you did get the same kind of fan mail, too, that you get on television today. Oh, people wrote you letters and sent you presents. And did you ever, ever get any love letters of, other than that Chicago <laughs> announcer? Well, I ain't going to tell. <laughs> <laughs> We, we found, Ed, I think you'll uh, back me up on this, that uh, it, it was a young group of, of actors yeah. and actresses, mm -hmm. really. Yeah. They were all well, in their uh, 20s, 30s yes. at the most. Yes, that's true. That's true. They, they, they were. We were, I guess. There was, quite, there was a range, naturally, of 10 to 20 years. But once you got going uh, and learn how to do it, because... There was something to learn. There's something different to learn about each of the acting mediums. And the thing that happened in radio is that you learned to act mostly by hearing it. You heard, and something about the way it sounded to you called you to respond a certain way. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't afford to take the time that you can when someone sees you. I mean, dead air was the worst thing could happen. You better learn how to fill up that dead air, which is one of the things that you learn, because I remember my very first time on gangbusters i lost the job because i didn't know 
that you had to come in quick, pick up a cue fast, or fill in underneath, or that if you were crying, you were allowed to cry underneath the other person's talking. I thought, oh, you better keep yeah, your mouth yeah, shut. You don't stop talk. Stop, yeah. you see. Well, you learn. You learn how to do it, so, because the whole problem was exactly the same as it is in any one of the acting mediums, to make it believable to the person listening. Sure. They yeah. had to believe, and they wouldn't believe unless you learn how to believe it, really believe it, as you did it. When you worked in the series, Francis, uh, over a period of time with the same group of people, did, um, did you ever uh, begin to clown around or uh, break up or... Uh, oh, sure. But if you're a professional, it's your job, you know, to keep going and know how to do it. And, oh, sure, crazy, nutsy things would happen. You know, scripts would fall out of people's hands. You'd make faces at each other while you were talking to each other. You'd tweak each other. You'd, you know, of course. But mostly, you were really terribly earnest and serious about your work. Uh, I have found that most of the people that I worked with in those days were extremely serious and dedicated actors. They really were. They loved being actors, which is a funny thing about actors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was true. We thought that, like these uh, afternoon uh, kids shows, they were done tongue-in-cheek, you know, but they really weren't. They, they were just as serious about those oh, as if sure. they were doing Shakespeare. Sure, really. absolutely, of course. Well, we're off the had an audience we out can't there help that was it. believing in you, That's too. Right. And That's right. That's uh, right. You did have a responsibility to them. Yes, indeed. Well, I... I and, to, and to your job. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got to... Uh, that's true. I've got to hear Terry and the Pirates. You've got me psyched up here. <laughs> okay, Dick, let's roll the tape on this one now. Now, Quaker Puffed Wheat and Quaker Puffed Rice bring you... Terry and the Pirates. The new and exciting adventure of Terry Lee and the Pirates Gold Detector Ring. Connor, I owe it to the memory of my father to save his name, to find his murderer. And for the first time in my long search for the ring, I've got something to go on, thanks to you. Let me get back to Shanghai. Let me see Turnbull, and I promise... No, son, you shall not get away. But why, Con? Why? This is the fateful hour in the destiny of the cult of Nan Kai Feng. Unless the gold detector ring is returned before the new moon rises, and we are thus able to ascertain whether this is the true idol, the ancient curse of Ting Yang shall fall upon us all, and all our people will die. I respect what you've said, Khan. I realize the importance of your problem, but oh, why do you insist I have the ring? Isn't it obvious Turnbull has it? Didn't he promise to return it to you and then renege on that promise? Indeed, he promised to return it. And he would have done so if you and your friends had not intervened. He has told us distinctly, my son, that you have the ring. And you trust his word on it more than you do mine? Yes, because we know how important it is to you to have the ring. Of what use could it possibly be to Mr. Turnbull? I don't know, but I'd sure like to find out. You are deluding yourself when you question Mr. Turnbull's honor and integrity, my son. He is a great man, known and respected throughout the world for his kindness, his generosity, his philanthropy. We cannot doubt him, but we can doubt you. Mr. Lee, help us. Help us to save our province. We know you have the ring. Give it to us. You shall go free. Withhold it from us longer, 
and you shall pay the full penalty. Terry's 11th hour draws closer in the form of an unnamed but perilous threat which the Khan now holds over his head. Meanwhile, in a secluded tea room hidden away in one of the side streets of Shanghai. We'll have to make this meeting pretty short, friends. My date with Turnbull is in less than an hour. Why in the name of Aunt Martha did we have to pick this revolting ghost nest, Pat? Because it's out of the way. We won't be overheard. And there's no chance of Turnbull seeing us all together. So eat your soup, Boston, and stop yammering, huh? Yes, boss. Nice little stories in the papers, aren't they? Yeah, I was reading them just before you came. Poor Terry and Connie, plastered all over the front pages. <laughs> Murder suspects stage daring jailbreak. Police spread dragnet. Magistrate says no clue yet to whereabouts of Terry Lee and Connie. But their capture expected momentarily. Oh, Anybody with any sense could tell looking at that picture of Terry that he never would commit a murder. Look at him. So nice and, and so honest and so sort of cute. I can't stand it thinking of the trouble he's probably in now. What are we going to do? I only wish we could remember the name of that problem. Oh, it's, it's a funny name, Pat. It's like Nanky Poo or something. Oh, fine. Somewhere in the province of Gilbert and Sullivan, no doubt. That should give us a hot lead. Okay, wise guy. If you're so smart, what have you two turned up since this morning that might be considered a hot lead? Well, not very much, I'm afraid. Pat, I'm kind of ashamed Now, wait a minute. For practically ten years now, Pat, ever since Terry was a kid, you've been running his life here in China, watching him like an old mother hen, ordering him around and telling him when he should brush his teeth and go to bed. And yet, what happens? The first time Terry really gets into a jam, you just sit there and don't do anything. Mother Burma. May I have the salt, please? No. And as for you, Patrick, you'd better sit in the corner for the next half hour. You're, you're right, Burma. I, I know I haven't been much of a help so far, but I'm doing all I can. We haven't exactly been sitting still, Burma. In fact, we did just a little sleuthing about an hour ago. Pat, will you stop jiggling that little box around? It makes me fidgety. Huh? Oh, sure, sure. Sorry. Say, let me see that box. I thought you might be interested. It's a box of cough drops with an American label on it. Yes. Where did you find this? In the house where Chung Fu was murdered. <sighs> they ought to move that place to an amusement park. It'd make a first-class spook house. Do those little lozenges mean anything, Burma? Mean anything? Do you know who uses cough drops just like these? I've seen him take them. I was hoping those might be something our friend Turnbull left behind. I know these are Turnbulls. Friends, I could be mistaken, but this innocent little box here might very well be the weapon we need against Turnbull. If these won't make him talk, I don't know what we can do. What are you going to do with him, Burma? Just leave that to me. Uh-oh, look at the time. I've got to be getting back to the garden. Take it kind of easy with that guy, Burma, will you? We like having you around. Oh, sure. Don't worry about me. Well, I'd better be shoving off. Meanwhile, see if you can't figure out what the name of that province is. And you, Hotshot, check your friends, won't you? We've got to figure a way somehow to help Turnbull get back to the States. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Terry and the Pirates. Oh, boy. That's great. We'll get back to our guest, Francis Cheney. children here. <laughs> we'll get back to Francis Cheney right after this message. Cromwell Savings Bank, a division of Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank, is now taking applications for new checking accounts in any one of the six banking offices. You heard correctly. Cromwell Savings Bank is now a division of Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank. And together, these two hometown neighbors will be serving your best banking interest in every way. And beginning January 1st, 1976, 
you'll receive full banking service for checking accounts too. Stop into any one of the six branch offices today and apply for a new checking account that will start you off to better banking in 76. Cromwell Savings Bank and Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank have offices located in Middletown, Cromwell, and branches in Montville and Colchester. And now an account at either bank is an account at both. Cromwell Savings Bank, a division of Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank, member FDIC. Our guest tonight on the Golden Age of Radio is Francis Cheney, who is appearing at the Hartford Stage Company as Bessie Berger in Awake and Sing by Clifford Odets. And we're talking, of course, about the, uh, the days before uh, television. We're talking about uh, those golden days of radio. And we were, we were discussing earlier, Francis, the fact that you did most of your work in, in New York. But mm -hmm. uh, did you ever get out to, to Hollywood? Because a well, lot of radio originated out there. Well, I did, but not until uh, I went out to Hollywood to be married, really. And, and uh, when, when I went out there, I started doing some radio. And it was funny because I, I got to work with people like, uh, oh, doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter about the names. But finally, I got a call for a show, and I thought, well, somebody wants me for this part. I wonder what it could be. And I came to see about it. They didn't want me for the part at all. They wanted me to be the voice of Fatima. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, you know, from Fatima's cigarette. Sure. And there was Basil Rathbone, and I'd forgotten what this was all about. But I think it must have been someone who had either remembered Burma or I don't know why, but I was going to be the mystery voice of the ages. I can't believe these things really went on, but they did. So uh, they, again, for this, you see, this was very serious. This is big business. When you're going to be the voice of Fatima, that's not just coming in and doing a big acting job. You're the voice of Fatima. So lots and lots of people came to audition for that one. And I, why they decided that I was going to be the mystery woman of all time, I don't know. But they did, so I was the Fatima. And it was fun. I liked doing that. I didn't mind that it was commercial. I thought it was fine. I had a wonderful time doing it. Did you enjoy doing the um, the big shows? Um, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of you know Philip Morris Playhouse, and oh, I uh, loved they it. were really stature. Just loved programs. it, and of course Charlie. Did you did you know Charlie Martin, who no. used to oh, direct? Oh, heard the name. That. He was a director, I believe, right? Well, he really was a funny guy. I think he's out there in L.A. now. Uh, and I ran into him one day somewhere at a restaurant or something, and he immediately turned to whoever was his companion was and said, I discovered her, which I thought was fine. <laughs> I was very happy to have been discovered by Charlie. But he was, I loved him because he was highly theatrical. Now, here he was directing this radio program, but of course in those days the radio program was done in a theater. Mm -hmm. And all the actors dressed. You see, we wore long dresses, evening gowns, and looked glorious. And the director was all done up in evening clothes. And he directed in front as if he was Tuscanini, you see. And you would do wonderful material. You would do, oh, good, really good first-class movies and plays on this. Well, uh, Charlie gave me my first job on that in a play called uh, Of Mice and Men. And I had come up. It was also pretty soon after I got started, and I'd heard about this program, and I wanted to be on that, because that had all these good plays, you see. So I called and went up to see him, and he he was very reluctant. He didn't, I didn't, nothing happened. There weren't any vibes, as the kids say, you know, across mm -hmm. the desk. 
And I said, well, can't I audition for you, Mr. Martin? And he said, well, all right. Yeah, he'd have me audition. He said, well, do you think you can play this part? And I said, thought about it very well, very hard. And I said, yeah, I think so. So he stuck me in a control room by myself. And there I was, all by myself, you see, on the microphone, reading bits and pieces of, of Mice and Men. And every five minutes, he'd open the door and say, is that you? And I'd say, yes, that's me. He'd close the door, go away again, make me do it some more. He went on having me come in every day to audition for Mice and Men for eight days. I auditioned while he'd call other people because he didn't like me. He didn't like me, but he liked what it sounded like <laughs> over that microphone. <laughs> and it was just crazy. And finally he broke down and gave me the part, which was lovely, because then I worked for him all the time. Oh, that was <laughs> good. Yeah. yeah, it is funny that uh, when you're talking to a person like we are face-to-face, it's one thing, but if you listen in the control room and, and just hear the voice, it's, it's sometimes quite different. You know, you really you get a different, uh, completely different communication between the uh, the actor and actress and the person listening to him. I know, I know, because I used to do, uh, you know who Arthur Lawrence is? He's quite a well-known playwright, mm -hmm. and, and when he, he started working, writing for radio during those war years, and he uh, did some programs, and I, I used to, on some of those documentaries about the war, I would have to play a little girl or, and an Italian prostitute. Are we allowed to say that on the radio? Oh, yeah. It's okay. It's oh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, somebody's mother or sweetheart from Omaha. And you had to do all that stuff. You had to be able to go back and forth, say, Caramella, signore, can that pretend? I'll have one. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be playing these, of course, we have to make this very clear on the same show. Yes, on the same show, of course, within five minutes of each other. <laughs> sure, <laughs> sure. Every once in a while, I was a listener in those days, of course. I, I had no idea what was going on other than the fact that I, I loved that, that business of what was happening on the radio. But every once in a while, I'd recognize a voice as being f similar to uh, a voice of another character. And only in later years did I realize that, of course, actors doubled and tripled and so on. Were, was that in any way in violation of the union contract? No, you were only, b before the union came into existence, people did do many, many different kinds of things. But then I think there were regulations on the documentary shows. I think you were allowed to do two or three or whatever it was. I don't, I don't remember what the, no, they didn't, they not be in violation. No. <laughs> and of course, you the, get into uh, a lot of trouble. <laughs> it, it would work both ways because it would keep actors out of work. And I suppose the actor who was versatile would uh, would not be compensated that much more. Well, the thing, you didn't do that doubling and tripling except on a news kind of broadcast, news sort of mm. documentary kind, and, and you didn't have that much to do. You might have just a few lines. You know, you might, you might have to jump in quickly with a line or two, and they'd have to have hundreds of people if they really cast each one. Did anything untoward ever, ever happen, Francis, you know, where um, the script was changed at the last the minute? The always got changed at the last minute. You got cuts and changes on, uh, you could get cuts and changes five or ten minutes before airtime. You had to learn how to mark your script so that you could read it, play truthfully, know what you were about. It's as if you memorized the action, the sequences, whether you did it consciously or not, you really knew what you were doing. And of course, some of the half-hour shows and the hour shows, you would rehearse 
for several hours, for several days, so that you, and you took the script home, and then you would cut a record of the dress rehearsal, and the director would hear it, and sometimes the cat, oh, I've got a story about Charlie. I knew there was a reason why he's stayed in my heart all these years. I really have enormously appreciated the people from whom I've learned something in this business, and there have been many, but Charlie was one. He was, as I said, highly theatrical and pretty nutsy, and a little weird, but by God, I learned <laughs> something from him. I had to play the second part in a our version of a movie called The Awful Truth. And I was playing what in those days, the comedy girl, the kind of ingenue comic, sort of comic part. It wasn't the lead part, it was the second lead. And there was a comedy scene where this husband is outside the door, I don't remember the details of it, and I was behind the door, and I was supposed to be crying and not letting him in. Well, I was such a straight, legitimate actress that if I didn't really cry, well, how in the hell was I going to cry, you know? <laughs> so there I was, and I thought, we, I heard the record, and it sounded dreadful, just awful, I thought. And I said, Charlie, you're the director, now come on, you help me, it's terrible. He said... No, it's fine, it's fine. I said, it is not fine, it's awful. Now you help me, it's your job. Now you tell me how to fix that. He said, oh, for God's sake. He said, get up there. So I got up there. He said, all right, now you go, mm, who? I said, all right, mm, who? He said, all right, now you say that, mm, who, and keep saying it. So I went, mm, who, mm, who, mm, who, mm, who? He said, now say it faster. So I went, mm, who, mm, who, mm, who, mm, who? He said, that's it. <laughs> How about that? Oh, that's great. <laughs> so I will forever love Charlie Martin. <laughs> that's no, a beautiful story. No tears story. when you do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about A House in the Country. Tell me about that. Mm -hmm. Well, A House in the Country uh, was very important in my life because, um, well, I, I, I don't really know how to get into this, and I don't even know that I want to get into it. I've been married twice in my life, and the first time was to David Lardner, who was the youngest of the Lardner boys. And I was fortunate enough after his death to marry Ling Lardner Jr., who was his brother. But at that time, at House in the Country time, I was just fresh married to David. And... Uh, House in the Country was an absolutely delicious, enchanting experience because it was a lovely program. In my opinion, it was quite a rung above the ordinary morning show because mm -hmm. it was comedic. It was based in kind of reality. It was about a young couple in New York who uh, escaped to the country to live happily ever after and do their work. The husband was a, uh, was a commercial artist, which right away was a little different from <laughs> the ordinary sort of thing that people did on, on soap operas in those days. And it had Thelma Ritter as the comedy interest in it. Now, you know, who could, who could ask for anything more? And we all liked each other enormously. Just, it w we were really a very happy, happy group. And, uh, you know, they were part of my life. Sure. Uh, I had a baby on House in the Country. <laughs> I had gotten married on House in the Country. I, I think, sent my husband off to the wars in House in the Country. So it was a very touching and lovely and happy family experience for me. Mm. You were playing yourself, really, and 
<laughs> well, I, I could be funny. That was the thing I liked. I liked the fact that I didn't have to weep and scream and cry. I could be funny. And yeah. even if I cried, I was funny, and I yeah. liked that. Yeah. Especially having <laughs> Thelma around. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, Lucille Bo does it all the time, doesn't she? She cries <laughs> and it's funny. <laughs> yeah, right. Do you, do you have a, a copy of A House in the Country? Yes, uh, a single copy. Dick. This is a hard one to come by, but I did come up with one. Well, you just listen, Francis Cheney. You just listen. <laughs> This is the story of a house in the country, a house we all have dreamed of, a little house on the country road where the birds are singing in the trees, and maybe, maybe there's even sheep over in the next pasture, a house with a little white door, and when you knock, voices cordially say, come in. Come in. In just a moment, then, we'll take you to visit a house in the country. Welcome to A House in the Country. You're going to meet Joan and Bruce Marshall, two young city people who have left the skyscrapers of the city for a little white house on a country road. They're young, they're brimming with hope, and they're completely ignorant about country things. Today, as we join our friends, we find Bruce and Joan just settling down to read the evening paper. Come on, Joni, let's divide the Middle Falls Chronicle. Uh-huh, you get the front half and I get the back half. If you want the front half... I still get the back half. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's the back half. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, boy, this is good. It really is. Yeah. <sighs> oh, don't say it. And sit still, darling, I'll answer it. We'd be delighted to have you. Thank you. I'll be over just as soon as my husband gets the car out. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello? That was Mrs. Ambrose Carlton. 
So? She wants to come up and see us tonight. What for? I don't know. Said she had something important she wanted to talk to us about. Important? I'll bet she wants a donation for something. Well, whatever it is, we'll have to be nice to her. Mm. She's the one who always is on committees and things, isn't she? Mm. I've never met her, but she's a friend of Clarabelle Hopkins. I've seen her at church, and her name is always in the paper. Well, I hope she doesn't take up too much time and spoil our evening. So do I. Mm. Hey, speak of the devil. Hmm? Here's her name. In the paper? Yeah. Well? Mrs. Ambrose J. Carlton, chairman of the casting committee of Middle Falls Mask and Wig Society, announces that several selections have been made for the cast of the annual play, Runaway Romance. But that there are still several parts open, including the feminine lead. Those interested apply. Oh, Bruce. Yeah? That's what she's coming here for. What? She wants me to be in her play. Why should she? Oh, I told Clarabelle that I was president of the dramatic club in school and played leads in all the plays, and she probably told her. Good night. What do you mean, good night? I'd like to play the lead in this play. I haven't acted for ages. Okay, but I'll have nothing to do with it. If there's one thing I hate, it's amateur dramatics. Hey, where are you going? Change my clothes, of course. What's the matter with what you have on? Do you think Sarah Bernhardt would let a casting director see her looking like this? Old friends, hometown neighbors. Cromwell Savings Bank is now a division of Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank. And together, they serve your best interest in every banking way. Open an account in either bank, and you have an account at both. And beginning January 1st, 1976, you'll get full personal banking service, including checking accounts. Join the family in the main office in Middletown at the corner of Main and College Street at 846 Washington Street in Middletown, the Midway Shopping Center in Montville, Colchester Shopping Center, Colchester, 327 Main Street, Cromwell, or at the Cromwell Plaza near Kmart. In an age of expanding and changing bank services, Cromwell Savings Bank and Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank have joined together to serve your best banking interests in every way. Member FDIC. Our guest, Francis Cheney, and uh, we're uh, going to have to say good night, unfortunately, in uh, just a couple of minutes or so. But before we do, I'd like to uh, find out from you, Francis, if... Uh, if I may, uh, did you make the transition from radio into television, uh, as many actors and actresses did? Well, in the early days of television, I was in California, and I had very young children, you know, really very young. And those early television shows were really something else. I mean, they were wild and woolly, weren't they? Mm -hmm. <laughs> they sure were. <laughs> and I was a little... Uh, snooty about them. I don't, I don't know why I was snooty. I sure could have used the money, but I was a little sure. kind of, well, I didn't know with children and so on. I left California in 1950, or 51, I guess, and came back east finally via Mexico for six months before we moved back here. So there was a period when I was kind of out of the business for a while. And uh, I didn't really, well, I came back and did a lead on Philco Playhouse in 1954. Fred Coe used me, and that was very nice, and I liked doing that. It was a very good, good script. And then, uh, I don't know if you saw a program on television about John Henry Falk. 
I sure did. Yeah. Well, if you did, that's what I'm talking about. And uh, it was a very difficult and very sad time, and I have never spoken about it publicly. But it did happen, and it was no joke, and it was very, very difficult, and many of us fortunately survived. Uh, we did what we could. We worked in the theater. We worked wherever we could. But the Philco Playhouse program that I did in 1954 called Holiday Song was the last nighttime television show that I did until I did a Defenders in 1963. Oh, I was able to do Edge of Night because that was a daytime show. I was put on it and I played it and it was fine. Uh, I did not start doing commercials until after I'd done that Defenders. And um, I really don't even like to think about it. At the same time, I think that I'm so glad that this program was aired last week because um, I think it's time that these things were no longer shoved under the rug. It's time that people like yourself, Francis Cheney, spoke out about those, those times to remind people what, uh, what we almost lost in the way of uh, our freedoms. Well, I'm glad you feel rights. that way. Uh, I, it was one reason that I mentioned the fact that I'd first been married to David Lardner and then married Ring Lardner Jr. because Ring was one of the Hollywood Ten, and that yeah. was a difficult thing for both of us. But we're strong and hale and hearty, and uh, we're fine. And <laughs> I really feel, I, I personally feel quite reborn. <laughs> I'm delighted to know that. And Francis Cheney, thank you very much for being our guest tonight on the Golden Age of Radio. Until next time, this is Dick Bertel. And this is Ed Corcoran. Good night. Pepper Young Family. The story of your friends, the Young. The Golden Age of Radio has been brought to you by WTIC and Cromwell Savings Bank, Division of Farmers and Mechanics Savings Bank, hometown friends serving your best banking interests in every way. Special materials supplied by Steve Lewis. The Golden Age of Radio was produced by Bob Sherego and Dick Bertel. Broadcasting from New York City, Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and... A dancing program from the Paradise Restaurant in the Great White Way of Manhattan, New York City. Played by Glenn Miller and his office. Everybody, I'm Wong Xu, and this is the record portion for the Saturday show for November 18th, 2006. I should say a prayer here. Dear Lord, bless this nation, bless Bill and Kim, bless all the things that are happening to the listeners to bring love and joy and happiness in their life. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Here is the couple next door. CBS Radio brings you The Couple Next Door, written by Peg Lynch, and starring Peg Lynch and Alan Bunt. Well, I guess I better go upstairs and see if Bobby is covered. 
taking the covers off. I don't know what I'm going to do with that town. Well, just pin him in, dear. That's what I used to do to you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Oh, my goodness, perk up. You've been sitting here like groovy Gus all evening. You act as though you'd lost your last friend. <laughs> well, it's worse than that, Aunt Effie. I've lost my job. What? Yeah. Yeah, but I haven't had the nerve to tell her. My goodness, lost your job? Yeah. Cranshaw's dissolving the business. He's oh. retiring. Well, it isn't generally known yet, but he told us, and, well, I've known for some time. I just haven't had the nerve to say anything. Why, I, I, my goodness, what are you going to do? Well, I can always take a job with a head office in New York. It's such a darn big outfit, I'll be lost in the shuffle. I think I can get a job with them. Certainly nothing else here. Well, now, 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 don't you worry. If worse comes to worse, you can always bring the family and come out to Montana and stay with Alvin and me. My goodness, we'd just love to have you. Or maybe the family can stay with us while you look around and find something you really like. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, how terrible for you. Honey, will you turn the thermostat up a little bit? It's awfully cold upstairs. Oh, yes. Yes, I, I, I will, dear. Oh, golly, I hate to tell her. Oh, she's just going to be sick about it. She just loves this house. And all you two went through to build it and have it just the way you want it. And she has all her friends here. Yes, I I, I know all that, Aunt Effie. That, that's well, why I... Well, it's, it's just going to be a terrible blow to her. Just a terrible blow. Oh, dear, the children and everything. It's going to be so dreadful to uproot them. These are the psychological things that can upset them, so... Just change their entire life. Now, look, Aunt Effie, I mean, other people change jobs and move away. I mean, it's not a tragedy. Well, it's going to be a tragedy to your wife and children. Well, look, you're not making me feel any better. Oh, I'm sorry, but I... Well, don't worry about money. I know Alvin will be glad to loan you some, Oh, dear. please, Aunt Effie, I, I can always get a job. Well, I hope so. But you know how things are when you're over 30. Oh, Look, I'm sorry I said anything. I, I just... Well, you, you'd better say something to her right now, tonight, so the poor thing can begin to make plans. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, now, look, dear. Now, look, Aunt Effie, please, for Pete's sake, don't oh, cry. I just can't help it. You two have always been so wonderful to me. Now, you tell her tonight. <laughs> What is the matter with Aunt Effie? She came upstairs, clutching me and wiping her eyes and calling me her poor child. Oh. <laughs> what world did you say to her, dear? Well, I shouldn't have said anything to her. Oh, I realize that now. <laughs> Hand me my knitting, will you? I promised Betsy I'd have her sweater done in time for ice skating this year. And the way I fritter away at it, it'll be spring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wants to wear it with her red velveteen skating skirt. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah, what'd you say to Aunt Effie? Come on, I can talk and knit at the same time. Well, uh, honey, I believe I spoke to you some time ago that there was a possibility. Well, I mean, is, well, frankly, there comes a time in every man's life. Darling, don't make a speech. I've lost my job. Good. I know it's a. Good. Hand me that skein of red yarn, will you, honey? Right, right in that. Uh, you say right. good? Yes, I think it's marvelous. The red yarn, not the yellow. Yes. Red, dear. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I said good. I'm only sorry you got fired before you had the nerve to quit, which is what you've threatened many times. I didn't get fired. Cranshaw's dissolving the business. He's retiring. The job just doesn't exist anymore. Well, 
Say something. But I did. I said good before. Is that all you have to say? No, but I don't know what you're carrying on for, Bob. Carrying yes. on? Yes. Are you upset about it? Well, I mean, after all. After all what? Well, Pete thinks a man doesn't lose his job every day. No, not a man like you. But when a man gets in a rut the way you have. A rut? Darling, why do you suddenly forget the dozens of times, the hundreds of times you said you wished you had the nerve to quit your job, that you were in a terrible rut, that you were the one who really ran the business while Cranshaw played golf half the time, which is true, or walked off to Florida to go deep sea fishing. All right, all right. And you I... told me all the things you've always wanted to do, and I said if you feel that way about it, quit your job. I'll go wherever you want to go or do whatever you want to do, right? Well, yes, yes, but... Well, yes, but what? Well, I mean, talking about it is one thing. When it happens, it's another. Well, it's better, isn't it? Now you can do what you want to do. Can't you? I don't know what I want to do. Oh, honey. I don't. It's one thing to talk about what might be. It's another thing to find yourself free as a bird. Nonsense. How can you say nonsense? Look, I'm married. I got two children. I've got responsibilities. Would you be any happier as a bachelor? Oh, now you know that is not what I meant. Well, I don't know how many times I've sat here evening while you talked about the things you wanted to do, how you were stuck with this job, and you were so depressed. Well, I was just talking. I mean, everybody does that. Look, I am in the export-import business, the only one in town. I can't even get another job like it here. I don't know. We'll have to move. We'll have to sell this house, probably go to New York. Not that I want to take a job with a head company, but what choice do I have? Well, you can work there while you look around for what you'd really like. Why do you keep saying what I'd really like? You've always wanted to write stories and books. Listen, wanting to do something is quite different from starting from scratch and earning a living at it, especially when you have a family to support. Why don't you become an archaeologist? Well, you... An archaeologist? We sat here one wintry evening last winter, in fact, and you confided that you had always wanted, really, to be an archaeologist. Well, it's a little late, to say the least. Well, it's never too late to do anything you really want to do. Now, we can move to New York, you take a job at the head company, and at night you can go back to college and do graduate work. At Columbia, for example. What's the matter? I don't know. I, I don't know. Aunt Effie acted as though you were going to collapse when you heard the news, and I, I thought... Well, I, 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 do you realize we're going to have to sell this house? This house that we built, the house we, we, we dreamed of, the house that we always wanted. This, it's a house, this... dear. There are other houses. Just hanging on to a material possession isn't the end all and be all of everything. Why, lots of people have lost everything they ever had in this world and started afresh. Now, we'll have our furniture and all that. And even if we didn't, isn't it isn't sort of exciting to change, to start something new? Well, you scared? Yes. Ah, oh, fiddlesticks. You were just worried about me. Well, <laughs> yes, <laughs> but not entirely. I, Well, darn it, I guess I'm a creature of habit. You like to change the furniture all around. I don't. I like things the way they are, if they're comfortable. Difference between men and women, I guess. Well, what about the children? What about Betsy and Bobby's aunt? Effie said uprooting children might bring all sorts of psychological effects that they'll feel later on in life. Oh, you don't really believe that at all. To begin with, children are much more adaptable than adults to something new. And as long as we're all together, dear, that is the main thing. Turn that light up a little higher, will you? I think I've dropped a stitch here. Yeah. All your close friends are here. You make new ones. Any other world so small nowadays, people get around pretty well. Especially to New York. In fact, we'll probably spend half our time entertaining the visiting firemen. <laughs> <laughs> 
Of course, I don't think we should have an apartment in New York. You know, I think it'd be better if we lived in a suburb. You know, it'd be better for the children. Oh, sure, we can take the children into New York. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, golly, you know, take them to the theater, mm -hmm. the Metropolitan Museum, mm -hmm. Natural History Museum, mm -hmm. Statue of Liberty, the United Nations. Mm -hmm. You know, they ought to see the Bronx Zoo. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this all might be even better for them. And I hand me the skein of yellow yarn, if you will. No, I could take a job with a head company, and, and then in my spare time, look around for something that I really wanted. Mm -hmm. say, or do some writing, or in the evening, take a few courses in, in graduate school. Yes, I could do that. that's a wonderful idea, dear. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Boy, you know, it's so darn funny. I have known definitely for about two months that I've just been scared to death to tell you for fear you'd just go to pieces. Well, how can a man live with a woman so long and know her so little? Because men can't tell about women. You get hysterical if milk boils over on the stove, yet the, the night a tree blew down and caved in the garage, you said calmly, well, we might as well go to bed. We can't do anything about it until morning anyway. <laughs> well, then you should have known that I knew, as I did, two months ago. Well, you did not know this two months ago. I didn't know, dear, I guess. Look, I live with you. I know you. Look, I have gone out of my way to keep from worrying you. Go to the desk and open the top desk drawer and take out the large brown envelope. Get the envelope, dear. I'm busy knitting. <laughs> A month ago, you sent for these? Yes, I got the names of some real estate agents and contacted them. I thought someplace in Connecticut would be nice. You know, you can commute. Now, here's one in Westport. This one I like, and it's Fairfield. It's nice pictures. <laughs> we'll rent until we can find one that we want to buy. And, of course, we can't buy until we sell this place, but Mr. Murray here knows somebody who is desperate for a house like this one, and he thinks that we can sell this one, darling, the minute you say the word. And not at a loss, either. Okay. I am mad I did all this. <laughs> I was just remembering when we built this house and, and a bird built a nest in the basement stairs and we had to hold up everything for three days until the eggs hatched. Oh, yes. Well, the day we came out and found all the bathroom fixtures had been delivered and we didn't even have the foundations to the house in. <laughs> yes. mm. Well, honey, we learned a lot of things building this house and we build our next one. We'll know better, hmm? You think we'll build another? Oh, honestly, why are men so pessimistic? Well, I just bet I... I just don't think I could go through all that again. <laughs> well, we'll rent one for the time being. Now, you look the pictures over and see which one you like, hmm? And I thought we wouldn't say anything to Betsy and Bobby about leaving. We'll just go. We'll make it seem like a trip, an adventure. You know, we won't say we're moving for good. Oh, they'll know. Betsy will when she sees the furniture packed up. She won't see it. I decided we'll let a moving company do the whole thing. We'll just walk out. Stay at a hotel in New York until the furniture gets to the house that we, you know, select. And then Betsy can help arrange things. She will love that. She'll just love it. And don't worry, we won't tell all our friends so that they have to give us parties and all that, you know. <laughs> Leave and say goodbye and what's the matter? <laughs> I, I was thinking of how I'd have to console you and here you are consoling me. But I think the two of us better console Aunt Effie, who I believe is eavesdropping at the top of the stairs. Boo! I was not eavesdropping. <laughs> oh, I was Effie. just on my way down. Uh, you can't tell me you're as happy as you sound about leaving this lovely, lovely house. <laughs>
It's the best thing in the world for him, Aunt Effie. He's, he's been in a rut. Oh. Now, maybe he'll do some writing. <laughs> and if he writes that book, I expect it to be dedicated to me. <laughs> <laughs> to my wife, without whose devotion, guidance, and help in cooking, washing, ironing, cleaning, sharpening pencils, and changing typewriter ribbons, this book would never have been written. No, not <laughs> And yet. I may even ask 10% royalties there. <laughs> you strike a hard bargain. <laughs> I'm surprised at both of you. Neither one of you has even mentioned missing this lovely picture window with its magnificent view of the lake, or your lovely pine panel kitchen, or this beautiful fireplace that looks so wonderful at Christmas time. Well, I'm going to fix myself a cup of tea. But I must say, I don't think your generation has any feeling for the true value of things. Goodness, to just walk out of this lovely, lovely house. <sighs> when were you leaving, dear? Well, I should leave a week from today. Well, we'll all go together. Oh, I forgot about Christmas. Yes. Yeah. Now, don't worry. My mother always told me Santa Claus will find you, dear, wherever you are. <laughs> Something special you'd like him to bring you this year, dear? No, no. I've got everything. <laughs> now finish knitting that sweater so I can take Betsy ice skating in Central Park. Yes, sir. Couple Next Door stars Peg Lynch and Alan Bunt. What does it take to make a first-rate insurance investigator? Well, it takes legal knowledge of the insurance field, and it takes nerve, considerable brass sometimes. No dolts make the grade. When it comes to yours truly, Johnny Dollar, CBS Radio's razor-sharp insurance sleuth, it takes something more, a freewheeling expense account. Johnny's motto, hunches and money. Hear how it pays off for his client and himself. Be listening for yours truly, Johnny Dollar, this Sunday on CBS Radio. Next, Right to Happiness. A reminder, CBS News goes double for you, starting November 28th on the CBS Radio Network. CBS Radio brings you The Couple Next Door, written by Peg Lynch and starring Peg Lynch and Alan Bunt. Good night. Good night, Aunt Effie. Oh, good night. Good night, Aunt Effie. <sighs> What the heck's the matter with her? She certainly acted kind of funny all evening. Oh, she's worried. I can't, can't blame her. Drawn out and was supposed to get here two weeks ago, and he just keeps writing that he can't get away. Two of the cows are sick and one of the horses or something. Well, they probably are. So he says, anyhow. But if you recall, Aunt Effie mentioned there was also an attractive blonde widow who moved in across the road from them, too. Oh, for heaven's sake. Well, oh, a... Hey. My goodness, nearly midnight. Who could that be? Golly, I don't know what... Was the car just driving off? No, no, sit still, sit still. I, I, I'd better get it. There's I... a taxi, and there's a man on the porch. It's so late, you put the chain on the door before you answer uh, it. No, 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 don't be... Well, you folks expected me, or should I have made reservations? <laughs> oh, well, for Pete's sake. Hey, we were just talking about... Uh, Aunt Effie. 
Dad Epi, look who's here. My goodness, <laughs> Alvin, my, we were just well, talking about come, Andy. Come on in, come <laughs> in, come <laughs> in. Mister, <laughs> <laughs> here, let me help you with your bag. Oh, I just decided to jump on a plane, Effie, and surprise you. Surprise us? I don't see why you didn't let us know we could have met you at the airport. Well, Effie, for Pete's sake, you haven't seen him for two months. Now, don't ball the poor guy out. Give him a kiss. Yeah. Come on, there. <laughs> oh, it's just wonderful <laughs> yeah, to see you again, Laura, Mrs. James, and I both say you're the best housekeeper we know. You wouldn't say that today. I'm getting ready for the painters. Lately, I've had headaches and muscular aches and pains. Can't do half I should. Don't just put up with discomfort like that. For relief, try Doan's Pills. Good advice. That's Doan's Pills, an analgesic and mild diuretic to the kidney. Nagging backache, also headache, dizziness, and muscular aches and pains, may come on with overexertion, emotional upsets, or everyday stress and strain. Doan's pain-relieving action is often the answer, and they also offer mild diuretic action through the kidneys. So if nagging backache is making you feel worn out, tired, and miserable, with restless, sleepless nights, don't wait. Try Doan's pills, used successfully by millions for over 60 years. See if they don't bring you the same welcome relief. Get Doan's pills today. To save money, buy Doan's big economy size. Oh, Alvin. Well, all I can say is, Alvin, we're certainly glad you got here. The family's coming for Thanksgiving. They certainly would have been disappointed not to meet Aunt Effie's husband. Oh, I was planning on getting here by Thanksgiving. I hope to get here before this, but I just couldn't get away. Put your feet up on the footstool, Alvin. You'll be more comfortable. Oh, I'm fine. No, no. Put your feet up. I know you're tired here. No, no, no. I'm not tired, it's Effie. after midnight. You must be tired, Alvin. You always get to bed by 10 o'clock at home. Now put your feet up on the footstool. Uh, now, for Pete's sake, Aunt Effie, if he doesn't want to. I know he's tired. He just won't admit it. Now, Alvin. Well, okay, okay. Well, we uh, certainly uh, don't need to stay up. I mean, we can visit tomorrow if you, you'd like to turn in now. Oh, right? no, no. It's been so long since I've seen you folks, and we've got a lot to catch up on. <laughs> yeah, I can say we have. In fact, ever since Aunt Effie's been here, you know, we've talked about the films we took in Europe last year, and we decided to, you know, to put off showing them until you got here. Thought you'd enjoy seeing them, too, Alvin. Well, say, I sure would. Well, how about it? Shall I get out the projector? I can set it up in five minutes. Yes. I think it would be nicer if we showed them Thanksgiving Day so the family can see them, too. Hmm? Besides, well, it's much too late. I want to unpack Alvin's bags tonight and hack his suit. I know he's tired. Uh, well, how, how was the trip, Alvin, the, the plane? How was the weather? Was it, uh, you know, bumpy or smooth? Or... Well, you might say it was a pretty smooth flight, uh -huh. except for one time there. Alvin? The, the pilot talked to us over that speaker thing, and he started Alvin? to say... Alvin? Uh huh? Your cigar. There's an ashtray. Goodness. Hurry up, for the ashes go all over the front of your suit. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't make it. I got them all over the rug, too, I guess. <laughs> the love of Mike, Aunt Abby, you're not, you're not supposed to... Knock the ashes off a cigar, that's what makes it good. Right, Alvin? <laughs> well, if they stayed on the cigar, that's one thing. But they drop off, and I'm not going to have Alvin looking like a bum. And speaking of looking like a bum, when did you last get a haircut? Well, well uh, <laughs> longer ago, I guess, than it should have been. Uh, 
Oh, he looks fine, Aunt Effie, and it's wonderful to see him again. <laughs> yes, sir, I'll say it is. Well, I don't know why you didn't let us know you were coming, Alvin, so we could have met you at the airport. Well, he wanted to surprise you, Aunt Effie. Well, he's just a waste of money taking a taxi. Oh, now you listen, Effie. There isn't anything that's a waste of money when it means I'm getting somewhere to see you. <laughs> uh, well, why you want to see her is beyond me. She's done nothing but bawl you out ever since you Dear. got her. Oh, well, I'm joking, but... <laughs> Goodness, what's the matter with me? I, I'm some hostess, Alvin. Now, if you haven't eaten since five and it's midnight, you must be hungry. Oh, no, no. I don't want you to go to any trouble. Well, it's no trouble at all. I'm how about some scrambled eggs and bacon? Well, fine, if you're sure it's no trouble. You always no get trouble. indigestion if you eat just before going to sleep, Alvin. Remember the night you had waffles and bacon at the courtesy? And I still think it was the bacon. Yeah, well, I mean, but if he's hungry... Then he... I'll fix him some tea and toast. That'll be much better for you, Alvin. Well, all right, Effie. Well, I'll fix the tea and toast, Aunt oh. Effie. My goodness, you haven't seen each other for so long. Yeah. I can't believe you're really here, Alvin. You and Aunt Effie have have gathered so much since you've been married. I'm kind of cross that it's taken you almost a whole year to get here to visit us. <laughs> yeah, I should say so. Hey, you know what? We want to hear, uh, we, we hear you went to Honolulu. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I want to hear about yeah. it. How, how'd you like it? Oh, Alvin loved Honolulu. <laughs> My goodness, who wouldn't? Alvin, tell them about that beautiful hotel we stayed in and the funny thing that happened with the elevator man. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it seems well, that... The hotel he... was just lovely. Uh... We had our own balcony overlooking the Pacific. The room was just beautifully furnished with fresh flowers every day. They all weighed down his hand and foot. Well, it was just lovely. Now, you tell them about the elevator man. It was so funny. <laughs> Alvin? Well, you remember these things better than I do, Alvin. Oh, no, no, it's your story. You tell it. Well... <laughs> It, it was one morning, and we'd been out shopping and came back to the hotel. I rang for the elevator. It was late uh, afternoon, uh, and that's the whole point, Alvin, because it was the time people were dressing for dinner. Yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. You're right. Well, well, we got into the elevator, and I, I said six, please. Five. You said five, Alvin. Uh, you should have said six. You said five. That's the whole point of the story. Hmm? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess you're right, Effie. I am tired. I'll, I'll tell you the story tomorrow when I'm on my toes, huh? Oh, fine, fine, it doesn't matter. I'll go make the tea and toast. It'll be ready in a jiffy. Now, you just rest and visit. No, I want to get him unpacked. So, Alvin, you carry your bag upstairs, and I'll get your suits hung up. Come on, now. Oh, yeah, well, let me give you a hand. Uh... No, no, Alvin can manage it himself. Up well... this way, Alvin. I still think you should have let us know so we could have met you. I kind of thought it would be nice to surprise you, Effie. <sighs> well, <laughs> nice to see him again, isn't it? I better put the tea kettle on. You get out the bread, will you, dear? Come on, help me. Alvin is tired, and I guess you You're darn right, Alvin is tired. He's tired of Aunt Effie. Honey. Now, look, either you or I better have a talk with that woman. Now, listen. Both you and I better mind our own business. Don't you love Aunt Effie? I mean, do you want her marriage to go on the rocks? Getting married late in life, she obviously needs a little advice on how to treat a man and... This Alvin's a nice guy. I don't understand Aunt Effie. When she fell for him, she was like a lovesick calf. She giggled and carried on like a schoolgirl. Did you hear her tonight? Yes, yes. Now get the bread out from the bread box. Oh, never mind. I'll do I'll it. I'll tell you, she was she was at him the minute he walked in the door. Instead of rushing up and kissing him, she she bawled him out for surprising her, wasting money on a taxi. Alvin, put your feet on the footstool. Alvin, watch your cigar ashes. Alvin, you need a haircut. Alvin's tired. He needs to sleep. Alvin. 
can't eat before he goes to bed. I yes, I know. Begin with, no man likes to be reminded that he's not a spring chicken any longer and needs his sleep. Yeah, don't stand right in the middle of the kitchen. Well, well Alvin did look tired, and he does drop cigar ashes all over, and maybe he does get indigestion if he eats before he goes to bed. All right, all right, all right. but I am a man, and I know men, and I... Believe me, no man likes to be told that he's tired or nagged about his cigar ashes or... Look, yeah, ask him a question, and Aunt Effie answers for him as though he, he, he didn't know enough. How did you like Honolulu, Alvin? I said to him, oh, says Aunt Effie, Alvin loved Honolulu. I mean, can't the guy answer for himself? I don't know. I don't know. Put the bread in the toaster while I get a cup of yeah. coffee. You can do that much. Now, look, either you say something to Aunt Effie or I will. You have always told me that one should never interfere with other people's married lives. All we have to do is tell Aunt Effie to be nicer to him, sweeter, treat him like an intelligent human being. Well, I, I, I'm going to mind my own business for once. All right. All right. Okay, she's my aunt, and I am going to take her aside right now and tell her how to treat her husband if she wants to hang on to him. We'll return to the couple next door in just a moment. This is Winston Burdett in Rome. It's a long time since all roads led to Rome, but this historic city is still a major crossroads of world news, which we'll be reporting more often, more fully, when CBS News goes double for you beginning next Monday. That's when you'll start to hear 10 minutes of CBS News every hour on the hour, every weekday on this station. From Rome, from around the world, CBS News correspondents bring you double the detail double the depth as CBS News goes double for you a week from today. Starting the same day, a broad spectrum of brand new CBS radio features also makes their debut. David Schoenbrunn becomes your man in Paris, and Nancy Hunchman fills you in on a woman's Washington. Alan Jackson will command Information Central, and Douglas Edwards will supply the day's sidelights. It begins to happen Monday at this address. Be listening. Aunt Effie, Aunt Effie, could I speak to you a minute? Yes, come in, come in. Oh. Did you bring the tea and toast upstairs? Oh, no, no, anyhow, it, it wasn't quite ready. I made Alvin take a hot shower. I could tell the way he walked, his rheumatism was bothering him again. Now you get right into bed, Alvin, before you catch a chill. I'll get the heating pad, too. That'll help. <laughs> oh, by golly. If he really spoils me. <laughs> and I sure have missed all his attention. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had anybody around to care what I look like or what I eat or how I felt. And, well, by Jiminy, I just told her. I said, it's, it's the last time you go away without me for two whole months. Didn't I, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well... You need someone to look after you. I sure <laughs> do. <laughs> and who looks after you? You do, Alvin. My goodness. You know why he didn't get here till now? He put a sun porch on the house and he wanted to finish it. Well, as a matter of fact, I, uh, yeah, I did know her, but I oh. thought you were you were going to surprise her with that when she got home, Alvin. Well, I'll tell you, Effie doesn't like surprises, and I should have remembered that. <laughs> well, like tonight, she said she just started putting her hair up in curlers when I showed up, and... She looked terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could have looked nice for you if you'd let me know you were coming. Ah, uh -huh. women are funny, aren't they? They don't seem to realize that when you love them, they always look nice. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, look, I'll uh, I'll bring the tea up, Aunt Effie, and the heating pad. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, you said you wanted to speak to me. 
Oh, well, no, no. Nothing important. Nothing important. I, I just wanted to see if everything was all right. Oh, everything's all right now. Fine. Just fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, okay. I, I'll, be, I'll be right back. Nobody's down here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bring it up. <laughs> Not already. Well, I, um... No, what? I didn't say anything to Aunt Effie. Oh, there was good. no need to. My golly, you know what? You're not going to believe this. But that guy likes the way she treats him. She spoils him, he says. She looks after him, he says. And, and he's just basking in all his pampering and attention. He loves it. What man doesn't? Well, I mean, no real man wants to be spoiled and pampered like You I... like it. <laughs> you certainly do not spoil and pamper me. Not, not the way that Aunt Effie There did. are different ways, dear. Who finds your car keys? Who makes sure you keep your dental appointments so your teeth don't fall out? Who makes sure you take your vitamins? Who gives you the best, the rarest slice of roast beef? Who closes the window on cold winter morning? Who lets you do the Sunday crossword puzzle? Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. Double next door stars Peg Lynch and Alan Bunce. Start the week from today. CBS News goes double to 10 minutes hourly weekdays. Next, Right to Happiness on the CBS Radio Network.